very, very few investigators, even the ones, and I'm not kidding you, Tim, the ones oftentimes who, who really say, oh, what a shame, if only scientists would help. You get on the email or the phone and say, hey, I'll help. And if you want to see them convert into a mummy, that's <laughs> the fastest way to do it. Ladies and gentlemen, One of the things you can do with uh, the whole UFO uh, situation all the way to abductions is maybe chip away at it. And if we can do nothing else, Tim, we can, we can eliminate the stuff that just plain doesn't work. These are things that, that I find personally fascinating, and I can tell you that so do mainstream scientists. And we may disagree about, okay, whether well, there's any uh, compelling evidence, uh, but man, you know, I, I'm, if somebody calls me and they say, hey, there's a UFO out here, I'm out to look for it. And, uh, you know, that's the way I'm going to be until I can't get up in the night and run around anymore. And I'm hoping that if we get enough eyeballs on the problem and enough real interaction that maybe we'll crack a few of these. And, uh, and say, okay, yeah, we know what that one is now. Let's move on to the next one. Or, oh, this is really interesting. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of Beat 08 Audio Season 7. This installment of the program constitutes the first of the final four episodes here on Season 7, and it is an epic edition of the program. Based on our previous episode featuring skeptic Sharon Hill, BOA Audio continues our work building a bridge between the paranormal and scientific communities as we welcome Dr. Tyler Kochjohn, who is both a professor of microbiology at the Arizona College of Osteopathic Medicine, as well as a keen observer of the esoteric and the esoteric research community. Chances are you've heard Dr. Tyler Kochjohn on a number of programs that are friends with BOA Audio, including Paratopia and Project Archivist. I connected with him following the Sharon Hill edition of the program, and after hearing my good friends talk about what a fantastic thinker he is, I decided it was time to bring him on BOA Audio to explore his thoughts on the world of the paranormal. And it is quite the exploration, folks. It is quite the conversation. This one clocks in at three hours total. A three-hour-long conversation with Dr. Tyler Kochon, and, quite frankly, one that probably could have continued for several more hours. It is comprehensive, my friends, and really covers a myriad of paranormal and scientific genres. As such, it is a bit difficult to give you an overarching look at what we cover here in this marathon conversation, but here are some of the big talking points. 
We're going to discuss the challenges facing UFO and Bigfoot research and the attempts to solve these mysteries to those in the mainstream science and academia. What steps need to be taken to truly break these stories open and why has it taken so long to prove the veracity of these mysteries? We're going to explore those concepts here with Dr. Tyler Kochjohn. Additionally, we're going to delve into some hard scientific topics such as DNA, Alzheimer's disease, brain trauma, and the possible dangers surrounding the ubiquity of hand sanitizers and cell phones. Two things that you just simply cannot escape in today's modern society. Plus, of course, much, much more. I only scratched the very surface of this, as I said, marathon, three-hour conversation. Altogether, it is an epic edition of the program, which covers a wealth of topics in both the paranormal and scientific worlds, as well as where those two universes may overlap with our guest, Dr. Tyler Kochjohn. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Dr. Tyler Kochjohn, please allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Dr. Tyler Kochjohn is a professor of microbiology at the Arizona College of Osteopathic Medicine and adjunct senior scientist at Banner Sun Health Research Institute. He has had a wide range of research experiences, beginning over 30 years ago with work on human tumor viruses. For the last 15 years, he has been associated with Dr. Alex Roher's group at Banner Health, investigating the underlying biochemical causes of Alzheimer's disease. That work has involved investigations into the aftermath of failed attempts to prevent AD by immunotherapy and the response of the brain to traumatic injury. He first became interested in UFOs after hearing Frank Edwards talking about his book, Flying Saucers, Serious Business, on TV early in 1967. He put those interests aside for decades, until reaching a point in his career where he could begin to examine and investigate UFOs and the paranormal, taking full advantage of his scientific training and experience. All he knows, for certain, is that there are few easy answers. Tyler can be found online at twitter.com slash tylercokejohn, and you spell that T-Y-L-E-R-K-O-K-J-O-H-N. Check it out. And with all that said, my friends, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on March 18th, 2013. Dr. Tyler Kochjohn talking about the paranormal and science on BOA Audio Season 7. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 7. And I have a feeling we're going to have a thrilling edition of the program for you folks because, uh, Tonight's guest, he's really well thought of by a lot of people that I have a lot of respect for. The folks at Project Archivist, the folks at Paratopia. Those four guys are like your biggest fans, Tyler. You wouldn't even believe it. I hear about you all the time. And I've wanted to have him on the show for a while because I've heard such great things about him, but our paths hadn't crossed until now. So I'm very excited to talk to him. He's 
really uh, made a lot of appearances on various shows. He's spoken about the paranormal at length, but he's certainly not a paranormalist. He's a, he's a real live scientist. <laughs> and uh, he has a Ph.D. in biochemistry from Loyola University in Chicago, and he's a professor of microbiology at the Arizona College of Osteopathic Medicine. And I am talking about the esteemed Dr. Tyler Cokejohn. And as I said, I've heard about you from so many of my good friends, and I said, we got to get Tyler Cokejohn on the show. We, Like I said, our paths crossed, and it was time to do a Banal of America audio. So welcome to the show, sir. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be on. I guess, you know, let's we start out with the bio, the background, you know, who is Tyler Cokejohn, Dr. Tyler Cokejohn, and how did you how did you end up getting mixed up in all this paranormal stuff? Because most folks in the uh world of academia, I I guess it's really science, you know, you're doing real research. It's not just uh you're not in the classroom. I don't know, maybe you are sometimes. You know, most folks like that don't want to get involved in all this. So, you know, you're kind of the uh the white crow for all the black crows out there. Well, it's uh, it was kind of a long odyssey, and a lot of it was accidental. And uh, before I had any kind of formal science training, uh, I was interested in UFOs as a kid. And I um, watched uh, television one day, and um, Frank Edwards was on, and he had a book out at the time in the late 1960s called Flying Saucers, Serious Business. And I had to get that. And then for a few years, I'd got everything I could get my hands on about UFOs. <laughs> you sound like me and most of the members of the audience. Well, it's just it's just <laughs> something that I don't know why, but at the time, uh, I grew up in northwest Iowa in the late 1960s. There were cattle mutilations, sightings, very exciting time for UFOs. Mm-hmm. And so lots of interest. Parents were talking about it. We were out looking for them. Uh, you know, everything you can think of. And some of my friends were actually trying to create them, which was interesting. Hot air balloons. Like uh, Brady Bunch style? Yeah, yeah, you got it. Yeah, wow. so anyway, that, and then uh, came the Condon Report. And uh, that really kind of took the wind out of the sails for, um, I guess, the popular public interest, or it really, in my mind, began to uh, change the whole character of of um, what UFOs were perceived to be and uh, how people viewed them. And I think I was talking to uh, Jeff Ritzman saying that I, I got the message. If I wanted to proceed in science, I kind of knew what things to pursue and what things to drop. Yeah. And uh, UFOs, I, I stopped uh, following them for, oh, my gosh, until uh, James Korean, uh, the former director of MUFON. Oh, yeah came out, uh, oh, late 2007, and was saying, gosh, you know, what a shame more scientists aren't interested and won't help out. And I, I thought, you know, hey, I can do something. I'm a tenured professor now. Um, you know, I've got some, some time I could spend and devote and not get into trouble. Uh, so I got in touch with him, and uh, then the UFO Hunters show came on, if you remember that, on mm-hmm. the History Channel, and that got me going. Uh, and then the next... The next thing was um, Carol Rainey, and um, <clears throat> this may sound strange, but Carol Rainey was the first person, kind of what I would say, high-profile investigator, someone involved in the field, mm-hmm. who actually listened to me. Most other people, I think, took my emails and said, oh, delete. And uh, and Carol said, um, was you know, like she was interested in the science and. Uh, I just happened on a lark. I just happened to contact her and say, you know, 
all the things you wrote about inside unseen, you, you realize there's a way to prove if you have an, uh, an alien hybrid. And basically she said, really? Could you tell me more? And that started this long dialogue, which uh, led, led me to Paratopia, of all things. <laughs> and then it just exploded. I like the way that, yeah. <laughs> well, I think, you know, really honestly, I was listening to Paratopia out of curiosity about paranormal and, and trying to learn more about that because uh, the UFO hunters led me into a lot of kind of new territory. And what do you mean? You got interested in the show or were you on the show? I'm confused. About I got interested in it. Oh, okay. Oh. So I had listened to it for a long time and had no idea who anyone was, um, you know, out there. I didn't know what Carol Rainey's connection was to Bud Hopkins. Oh, nice. He came in almost like with a vacuum. Yeah, exactly. And I uh, just contacted her because she'd written the book and I said, hey, that's very interesting stuff. And oh, by the way, and uh, so she, I didn't know that she was already talking to Jeff and Jeremy about a Paratopia appearance. And so she said, well, why don't you just write something up and send it to Jeremy and uh, and Jeff and see if they would uh, um, be interested in, in putting it on their website or publishing it or something. And I said, okay. And uh, it took off from there. So, nice. yeah, and then it was really, really got interesting. So, <laughs> well, well, let's. How so, though? What, what, well, that, at that point, me, did people start like they were? At, so the first, they ignored you, and then they what? They ridicule you, and were like, "Get out, man! Get out! Get out of this uh, UFO thing! <laughs> we're all set! We're all set with you, Tyler! Get out!" If uh, <laughs> if I got any reaction, I guess the way to put it is, it was typically uh, nothing, and uh, very, very few investigators, even the ones. And I'm not kidding you, Tim. The ones oftentimes who who really say, oh, what a shame. If only scientists would help. You get on the email or the phone and say, hey, I'll help. And if you want to see them convert into a mummy, that's <laughs> the fastest way to do it. Uh, but there are, fortunately, there are a lot of um, people who uh, really do uh, both talk to talk and walk the real walk. So I've just kind of been searching for them. But, no, most people um, – really don't have anything to say to me and uh, uh that's fine that that's um perfectly acceptable they don't have to through the miracle of the internet i can get my point out there and um you know i'm talking to to people uh, on peritopia and other uh, venues has been very very helpful at least having um, other sides of the story for uh per people who are searching and uh uh, that's all I wanted to do was to just let people know who had experiences that uh, science does not necessarily say um, you didn't see what you saw. That there are people out there who uh, are interested in the in the stories and are interested in trying to figure out what's going on and, and not necessarily uh, going to ridicule anybody, you know, or make um, make light of the situation that, that we really would like to investigate. Right. And, uh, right. So anyway, it's been it's been quite a long odyssey. But no, most people, uh, most of the investigators have have um, kind of been, um, I guess you'd say, uh, cold or neutral. Yeah, uh, that's well. That, I'd say it's disappointing, but it's also uh, <laughs> predictable, I guess. You know. I guess. I guess. Now you have to understand if you want to look at the the converse. Uh, if you think about some people, they don't know who I am. Uh, they see at the bottom of my email, PhD, he's an academician. Uh, they could, for all um, really good reasons, think, 
oh, this guy is some kind of rabid debunker, and he's going to take data and kill me with it, so I don't want to talk to him. And uh, But I found uh, some people like uh, Ted Phillips, uh, Frank Faschino, um, they will work with anyone they think can help them. And uh, they're interested in just getting to the goal of finding out what the heck is going on. So there are people who are fearless. And, and I understand the others who, you know, not knowing me, uh, maybe would prefer not to work with me. And that's that's normal human nature. Well, let's hope that changes because we, you know, you've heard me crying out for more <laughs> real scientists yeah. to get involved in all this. I, you know, I've been kind of on a kick lately. We need to really get back to the bare bones of this, just try to figure out what, you know, as far as UFOs go or any of this stuff, you know, get back to the very simplest of questions. Yeah, I think that's, uh, it's really called for. Um, I can't remember uh, the last time I was talking to someone about um, the the uh, idea of ufology must die, but I think that's what some people who are saying that is, re- that's what they're really asking is, look, come on, we need to really kind of sort out the wheat from the chaff here and get down to the, the fundamentals and uh, I think it's it's obvious that there are some issues, and uh, there's not a lot of data, uh, hard data, for the extraterrestrial hypothesis. And what does that mean, and where are we? There's not a lot of data for any of these. I guess, what do you think is the good data, and what do you think is the bad? How would we actually go about this <laughs> revisiting the big question? You know, I've been kind of thinking about this lately, but, you know, what is the maybe collecting all the sighting reports and somehow running through some kind of, like, Nate Silver-esque data thing to figure out if there's any uh, ultimate connection between all this? Well, you know, that's actually, I think, the perfect question. And uh, I think it's a very fair one. Uh, yeah, you should come back to somebody and say, okay, uh, how would you do it? And, you know, what, what are your ideas? And what I would say is, yeah, you could, you could go ahead and uh, and continue to uh, collect reports and hope for something good. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, you know, all it takes is one. All it takes is one solid one. So the MUFON star team, these guys are ready to go out there and pounce. Sounds like a great idea to me. I just wouldn't make that necessarily my only thing. And uh, in terms of um, uh, what are the, you know, the, the central things to look for, uh, the first thing I'd say is if you can hone down what you're doing uh, into specific, hopefully testable or observable hypotheses. So talking about, you know, what would the visitors be like? Uh, would they be mechanical devices or would they actually have actual, really, uh, biological entities on them, which then might explain, help us explain better how they can do the things that we think they can do or people claim that, that they see them do. Uh, so if you're, you're thinking about, remember Jacques Vallée? Of course. And his, his work, 20, over 20 years ago, he was, was really pointing the way. And that is, look, you know, put a number to this. How many lumens do you think this thing is? And how does it compare to the other sightings? You know, put it to, uh, try to figure out what the luminosity is next to a known terrestrial source at a known distance. Let, let's get some numbers so we can say that what we saw on day one was similar to or grossly different than something we saw on day 57. I mean, look at all the diversity of the shapes and forms and things that we have. What does that mean? Uh, the first thing you do is to you start to do what, what Valet said, characterize, catalog, you know, compare back and forth. Um, and I think he's right that we've done very little in terms of, of really trying to characterize what are the emission spectra of these things. We see visible light. What else are they doing? And, and now we have better technology than ever 
to get after some of these questions. I mean, I think in one sense, it's a great time to be a ufologist. Right, but you need someone out there with the equipment to do that. Yeah, sensibly. I mean, some guy who sees a UFO out in the field, you know, or driving to work or whatever, you know, yes. they wouldn't know a lumen from a lemon. <laughs> oh, that's good. I like that. You can use that if you want. I will. <laughs> You'll see that come back on one of my videos one day. Uh, I like that idea. Uh, it's true. Okay, and and you're right. It could have been and should have been. Uh, all these things are 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 only possibilities. And uh, you're right. This is not something that you're going to go out into your backyard and necessarily do on a lark. And so what I would say then is one thing that that people have forgotten about, although actually did come up in the UFO hunters, was uh, let's focus on hot spots. And and there are some. Arizona has a couple, interestingly enough, or repeated hot spots. Those might be places where people could be prepared and uh, somebody could show up or spend considerable time in theater, so to speak. Right. Camp out for like, you know, have it set up for a long period of time. Yeah, yeah. There's, I think, you know, you're right. This is a frustrating phenomenon. And um, in one sense, uh, the closest thing that uh, I can come up with when people ask me, like, well, what, what are you dealing with? It's truly ephemeral. And the closest thing that, that most of us are familiar with maybe is mirages. And if you go out there and you've seen one, you know, like the water on the road thing, yeah, uh, you see it. You, you know, you're, you would see reflections in it. It's as real as real can be to your eye and your perception. You run up there, and there's nothing there. But you saw it. I mean, it's that I know what I saw moment. And we can ultimately now, understanding a little bit about physics and how things, including light rays, work, have an explanation. And perhaps, with enough luck and enough hard work, we'll be able to figure out, like, maybe some of the things we see have perfectly prosaic explanations, and maybe they don't. Um, Right now, they're really hard to explain. And uh, which makes them fun to me. Yeah, I think that's why, you know, I, I, I kind of made note of that in, when you were telling me about your background, because it struck a chord with me and I'm sure a lot of these listeners. There's a very voracious quality about this subject where I can't think of too many people I haven't talked to where as soon as you pick it up, you just get really invested in there's something very, uh, you know, sticks with you. Yes. Yeah, it begins to obsess you. And you, you sort of, it's like dog with a bone. It's like, whoa, gosh, this is an interesting problem. So I like to return to it uh, in the time that I have because I have other responsibilities. But uh, I find that it's never dull to come back and return to it and see what's kind of going on and uh, and messing around it and trying to solve a, a really, really challenging problem. And so that's the <clears throat> kind of the basis of fun science, you want to think of it that way. Um, it can be frustrating, but, uh, you know, if you kind of enjoy the chase, uh, you, you find that you have a lot of fun just uh, being out there. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Well, the ETH thing, you know, we, we exchanged, like, emails here before the program, so I've got a few uh, of your thoughts here. And you say, uh, you know, the state of the ETH is dismal. And, I, you know, I just feel like that's kind of... I feel like ufology has jumped to the conclusion before, without actually going through all the steps to get to that conclusion. So, yeah, ETH is the is the explanation. Is that what you mean? Yeah, you know, it's yeah. like they the, the 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 line of thinking never really crossed crossed the barrier of proving it, but somehow along the way it just became 
accepted just to far too many people, you know, and that it's in the mainstream as well. You know what I mean? That's a nonce, you know, synonymity, if that's even a word yeah. uh, of UFOs and, and, and ETs. You know, we need to break away from that whole thing and be like, listen, we just don't know what they are. They're just these lights right now. We want to stay away from a lot of the other stuff. And some of the people, I think Richard Haynes, um, NARCAP and others are trying to establish that idea. Uh, and have for for quite a while, but yeah, if you if you look back at a person, very high profile person like Stanton Friedman, who will come back and say, I've gone through and I've looked at the evidence, and the only thing that kind of explains it could be this. Well, that's kind of a explanation by failure to explain, and that's one of the better, more thoughtful ways of getting to the ETH. In one sense, I see it, but in the other sense, you're exactly right. This is cart before the horse. Um, you know, you're way down there, and that can mislead you. That can mislead you so badly. Uh, confirmation bias is deadly, and I think that that's one of the the uh, things that scientists constantly have to watch out for is becoming too enamored of our own theories and then ignoring critical bits of data that don't fit but would maybe help you come up with a slightly different view of it. So yeah, I think the other thing is from a scientist's perspective uh, is that the um, the ETH proponents have so little in hand. And um, I think at the UFO Congress I heard, you know, oh gosh, it's 70 years now almost after Roswell. And where are we? We're at the same point. You know, we're just arguing uh, more in depth about basically the same historic cases. We're just not getting anywhere and it's not very satisfactory. And in terms of attracting scientists into the field, uh, I'm going to tell you that, that you won't have many, not professional uh, people, because there's nothing to grab onto. Mm. You, you yeah. want to think about it, the fastest way to kill your career would be to say, oh, I'm going to study UFOs. You remember the curse of Phil Class and the idea that you won't know anything more than you at the beginning? Uh, what you know at the beginning will be the same amount you know at the end, which will be nothing. And I mean, very, very negative idea. Um, it, that would be fatal if you're attempt, attempting to get tenure or support or whatnot. There's just nothing to grab onto. And it's not like doing cancer research, for example, you know, where you can study it in the lab and, and you can really work with stuff. This is really hard. And uh, Well, let me just – oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, it just makes people shy away. Well, that's that's what I wanted to touch on because uh, I've, you know, I believe, I agree with you, <laughs> and but I've talked to people that really vehemently are skeptical of the whole idea that there's this academic backlash, you know, that that people who are trying to make it in academia and science, you know, don't touch the UFO thing. Like you said, could kill your career. I guess speak a little more to that, that the accuracy of the of that. Well, it would be uh, not so much that somebody's saying, oh, okay, UFOs are forbidden. You're not allowed. Right, right. It's like an institutionalized believe, thing. Exactly. I don't believe that's the case at all. But I, I can tell you that if you want to get tenure at a, a research university, you have to go out and get grants and contracts to support your research, and you have to have publications in the peer-reviewed literature. And what that means is that you have to generate data. Uh, it's very difficult to do that with uh, UFOs and, and comparatively far easier if you're studying something like I do, Alzheimer's disease. Right, where you can get blood from a patient. <laughs> you got it. And something that I can go out and get 
reproduce. I know where it is. I, you know, I can go in my grant and say I will have 27 patients. They will fall within these parameters. I will study them for X number of days. Impossible with uh, the UFO situation and other paranormal. So you're just stuck. And, and so it's so hard to generate data uh, that really, if you want to survive, uh, you know what to do, and that is not go that direction. Mm. So I think probably the, the people that would have the most likelihood of having something that they could do or hang their head on would be psychologists who kind of study maybe the reaction or phenomenon as a whole. Yeah, or sociology and that kind of thing. Exactly. But uh, in terms of the hard science type of stuff I do, no, it's just not going to be very attractive. And uh, so it's not a conspiracy in the sense that they're telling you, um, like the Condon report, mm. if you've ever read that. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you revisited that because you said oh my it changed God, your mind. Yeah. And it, um, it's outrageous. I mean, what was in there as a scientist? It is totally contrary to uh, what I would hold dear as an academician in that uh, one of the things that, that Edward Condon maintained, and he was a very well-respected physicist, but he basically came out and said, there's nothing to see here. This will not generate anything new. And teachers, dissuade your students from being interested. Don't even let them look at this stuff. <laughs> Uh, I, I, that was remarkable. I've never seen anything like that. Uh, as a teacher, if I had a student who was interested, I'd say, this is a great chance for this guy to learn all about how difficult measurements are, mm-hmm. all about astronomy, physics, whatever. I mean, everything, every science you can think of comes to bear here. So it's, it's a teachable a moment, as they say. It really is. It really is. So, anyway, I, I don't know. It's um, Well, that's remarkable because I never really sort of looked at it from that perspective, but it's almost like, it's almost like you, you know, you want to give ufology a hug and be like, it's not your fault. You just can't come up with any data. <laughs> you know? I like that idea too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I feel bad now for them. All this time I've been picking on them, but it turns out, you know, they just can't get, get anything that anyone can actually use to to solve this thing, as sad as that all sounds. <laughs> well, but, but that to seems this to be point, the case. Yeah, to this point, we, we don't have anything really solid. And there, there is a, um, a level at which you would come back. You probably heard of the, the admonishment about Occam's razor. And what Occam really, what people forget is that his real message was don't multiply your hypotheses, not necessarily that the simplest one is it. Don't multiply them. And so if, if you're not getting, if that compass isn't pointing the direction you want it to point, we come up with another hypothesis that explains, and a second hypothesis that explains the explanation. What we're really doing is not making hypotheses, we're making excuses. And it's so easy to do. This, this is the confirmation bias thing again. And so we've got this square peg and a round hole, and we just keep whacking it harder. And so at some point in science, one of the things that you have to do is step back and say, this ain't working. We need plan B. And that, that's where I'd say the, the state of the ETH in, in, in my mind in some quarters is pretty dismal because we're continuing just the same idea that tomorrow the, the stuff that didn't work will work. Maybe it will, but maybe it's time for some new visions. And I think that's maybe what I'm starting to hear 
um, people start to kick around. You know, one of the things I was thinking that they're saying when ufology must die is that we really need some new ideas to look at. Let's try to generate those. Like new ideas as in what, though? Well, what would be causing this? You know, is, is it something that, um, I mean, I'm looking at it, and there are a lot of sightings that when you get to them, they are not easily dismissed. Okay, we can have the prosaic ones, and, and I've seen them. I've gone out, people know what I'm interested in, so they, they ask, what's this or what's that? So I have literally seen weather balloons, the planet Venus, uh, a hoax in, in just the last three years here in Phoenix. <laughs> uh, all of those. Uh, so we can, we can get rid of the, of the simple ones pretty easily. But then there are some that are really hard, and the, the classic thing of, it's one guy in Pascagoula, Mississippi, who's maybe had a little bit too much to drink, who sees something. No, these, these are people who are rational, and a lot of times there are many eyeballs on the same object, and they're saying roughly the same thing. So I, I don't believe that you know it's one person's mistaken uh, perception or whatever. It's more complex than that. So the question would be, is this some kind of natural phenomenon? Now, remember Phil Class? Was, he was like ball lightning. I think was his favorite thing, and uh, or plasmas, and um, I think one time um, J. Allen Hynek talked about swamp gas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the idea, you know, and that really backfired on him. That was very unfortunate. But poor choice of words. Very poor, very poor. Um, yeah, <laughs> never, never lived that one down. But the idea of alternate explanations, natural or unnatural. But alternate explanations and means to investigate, desperately needed, really desperately needed. But you're, you're thinking, but you're not talking about like time travelers or people living inside the earth or stuff like that. Because well, we've been I exchanging would... sort of emails about the speculation aspect of ufology. And I, you know, I think, as you've said to me, it goes back, it still goes back to the ETA. So this whole idea I think you're saying is, you know, maybe take the idea of an intelligence out of it. I, um, th this is hard. It it's hard even to put into words. And, and trust me, I've gone over this myself uh, quite a few times as to what I think, what would be the way to really get some in insight into this. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, the first thing I'd say is I look at the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis of Mac Tony's and then other things like Micah Hanks put out that I, I feel are really just modifications of that crypto-terrestrial hypothesis, and they, they do solve a couple of problems, but in essence, they really are the ETH. We're just saying that they're homegrown. Uh, the other thing is uh, you talk about time travelers and advanced technologies. Uh, okay, uh, but again, that's what in science we would call the hand-waving part, the, the magic part. Uh, we don't have a good feel for how that might happen, which doesn't mean it can't, but in terms of, of a mechanism, it doesn't give me much to go on. And so I, I personally kind of shy away from those because I can't understand them and I can do precious little to investigate them. That's different from saying I know they're wrong because I can't say that. Well, I was thinking about this the other day, and it's like part of it is if they're time travelers or crypto terrestrials, I don't, <laughs> I don't know how we could ever really prove that that they're that they're coming from inside the earth or from outside of time. You know what I mean? Yeah. How, what, what, and, and as I, I was having a conversation with a previous guest, and it's like, let's say these things show up, we can't believe anything they say anyway. 
You know, why if they if they showed up and they're like, yeah, we're from the, the distant future. I, I mean, you know, we're just gonna take their word for it. Yeah, assuming that they look just like us. <laughs> right. So you'll never be able to really prove <laughs> that they came from our distant past ever. I don't think you'll ever be able to prove it somehow. Yeah, they would. Um, <laughs> they they'd have to give us something to go on, and uh, one of those things could be. Uh, let's just let's get very fanciful now, and, and let's say that we we did have a visitor that made themselves known, or somebody plugged one and drug it back, okay, and we got it for real. Now, by the way, this is something I'm very nervous about with Bigfoot yeah. and and all the stuff that somebody's going to hoax it and they're going to catch a bullet. But anyway, I hope that doesn't happen. I think that's already happened at least once. Well, one guy got hit by a car, right? Uh, yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I just, yeah, please don't hoax this, everybody. <laughs> but, um, anyway, the the thing is that if you if you got one, um, you could then interrogate uh, basically what their structure is. If they looked exactly like us, you, the easiest, simplest, and most understandable explanation is, in fact, they are us. Uh, there would have to be some other technological device or something they had that made it clearly obvious that this was wrong for example. But if somebody came back and said, oh, yeah, hey, guess what? Take a blood sample and uh, uh, do the DNA sequence, and what you will find on chromosome 11 is not what you expect to find, but a little DNA sequence that said made in the USA, you know, and, and here's where it will be. And ain't nobody on this planet's got that right now. And that would be, whoa, okay, um, that's interesting. So you would have an engineered species right there, right in front of you. And we could do that. That we could figure out. Is this the stuff about the uh, people who are immunized? They have it on oh. them all the time? Is that what you're talking about? Well, it would be uh, kind of a similar idea, is that if this person came from the future and they have gene modifications okay, uh, yeah. to the, basically the chromosomal, um, the, uh, chromosomal sequences have been modified to do something for some purpose, make them smarter, taller, uh, more athletic, something along those lines. Yeah. Uh, and they could report to us, oh, oh, by the way, I have a completely unnatural modification. It's never been seen in any of your studies so far because it didn't exist until we put this particular sequence in here. That would be verifiable. And so even if they looked remarkably like us, we could tease that out. Uh, this was actually where Bud Hopkins was going with with his book, Carol Rainey and Bud Hopkins with Sight Unseen. And, and they had some very good insights in that book scientifically. One of the things he was talking about, transgenic animals, and, and I'm, I'm going to tell you, they, they do, in fact, these transgenic mice that we work with, mm-hmm. they look exactly like any other mouse. But in their brains, we've fixed them so they load up with amyloid, the stuff that accumulates in Alzheimer's disease. So biochemically, night and day. And we can find them easily. And that's what I told uh, Carol Rainey. You have a transgenic person? You tell me where it is. It's a matter of minutes, and we'll know, literally, under the right circumstances. See, that raises, you know, where are all, where are all these transgenic people? You know, you hear a lot of theories that there's hybrids and stuff like that out there. You know, as we were talking about this, it's, you know, I've likened the human race, if this is all happening in the way some people think it unfolds, you know, we're, we're just like uh, cattle or something like that, but... You know, even in seven, I bet you in the last 70 years, a cow's probably killed a human somehow. Kicked him in the head or something, you know? Yes. A dog's attacked a person, you know? People, how can we never, 
<laughs> How can we never get one over on these, on this intelligence? Or uh, why haven't they had an accident, a mishap? You know, something go wrong, Apollo 13, and whoop, there they are. Right. And or at least, I, you know, if you if you if we just leave the Roswell thing out, how about like yeah, in the last since then they got really better at it. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, those are those are the things that that lead one to say, my gosh, you know, we really have to think about alternatives. Hmm. But uh, yeah, the the thing with uh, alien hybrids and and all um, that idea. Uh, to me, it is uh, easy to uh, to prove or disprove uh, using uh, DNA technology. And in fact, uh, I think I was telling Carol that one of the things that um, I felt that some of the proponents didn't realize is that the reason that I got into this was it was I was drawn in by some scandals. And uh, I don't know how those are proceeding now, but I was telling Carol Rainey that that it was very interesting that. Uh, the principal investigators never realized that the scandals were one thing, and, and they were a threat to them, to their continuing their work. But the real existential threat was people like me coming up and say, saying, "Dudes, this is bilge." <laughs> okay, I mean, this is this is bilge in its purest form. You got nothing, and if you had anything, we need to see X, Y, and Z, and they're done. The technology raced around these guys; they didn't know it. They didn't know it had come and sneaked up and actually blown past them to the point where they could prove it. I don't know what was well, the hybrid. This is you're talking about the, the hybrid, hybrid theory in particular. And so you know some of those ideas are uh, untenable. They're scientifically untenable. Or show me the data. One or the other. That raises an interesting. Ch- I'll throw the challenge out there, not to you. To to and I don't. I don't know if we have any listeners out there that are. <laughs> Self-proclaimed hybrids, but there's plenty of people out there who are. So you know, if yeah. you're if you are a self-proclaimed hybrid, you know, do what Dr. Tyler Cochon says and go get your DNA tested or whatever and become a super millionaire, you know, celebrity overnight because you're an actual hybrid. Or shut up, well, right? Isn't there that was kind of uh, the, that's the, cha- that's the challenge part. <laughs> um, you can have I, amazing riches and and be you know a superstar, or you can stop calling yourself a hybrid. Uh, we'll just let them go. I actually saw one <laughs> at the Congress. What's that? And, uh, I saw one of these people at the Congress who has uh, been publicly outed. Uh, Barbara Lamb had given her name, and um, and she's been she's been interviewed and and has made some claims. But I don't want to do those tests, and and so it would have to be something that they would do on their own. And I'm not anticipating that's going to happen. No, I know. But yeah, it would be one, two, three, please. Um, go ahead, and then yeah, we got some real problems if if these things are true. But yeah, there, there's a lot of strange claims. The key thing is that there are ways now to get to them, and so that's that's what I would say is one of the things you can do with uh, the whole UFO um, situation all the way to abductions is maybe chip away at it. And if, if we can do nothing else, Tim, we can we can eliminate the stuff that just plain doesn't work. And to my mind, the hybrid, the alien hybrid, the nefarious plot against humanity is one of those. Great. Let's move on to something else. And that alone would be an advance. And those are the things we failed to do. We just spun our wheels in the mud for too long here. Exactly, yeah. Got to get back to basics. That's what I've been well, saying. Well, that's what, here. yeah, if, if that's what you mean, I agree, is that, 
the idea of at least eliminating the non-starter ideas. Mm. And uh, now, what was was I guess feasible 25 years ago when a lot of these guys were at their prime is very different than what is feasible today. And that's why I say the technology kind of exploded right underneath them. And uh, they never realized that you can't say these things anymore because now somebody like me can raise their hand at the meeting and say, well, why don't you just prove that? You know, that's a two-day job. <laughs> you know, three days if you're slow. Again, yeah. Makes it, <laughs> makes it sound so simple. I don't know why these people... If I thought I was a hybrid, Tyler, I would be there tomorrow. Getting my DNA tested, and then I would get an agent, and I would get on the Tonight Show. Well, you know, um, there may be hope for you. And so I, we also kind of talked about this: is that there's a dark side to the DNA revolution, and, and in addition to what all of us are going to have to contend with uh, in terms of what DNA technology will do to our lives. Um, one of the things that could happen is that um, if necessary, if the two of us wanted to, we could collude and manufacture a hybrid. Well, I was going to say, actually, the more I thought about uh, the craziness of it, I'm surprised somebody hasn't somehow come up with a way to, you know, when you talk about this this Bigfoot DNA kerfluffle that happened uh, this year and is still kind of unfolding, it's like someone could come out and be like, yeah, I got tested by this guy, and this, unfortunately, uh, a portion of the uh, audience would believe it. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, so what do you do? Well, you make sure that you meet that need for the audience, right? And uh, I, I'm not sure uh, what uh, the motivations were for the Bigfoot people. I don't know them, uh, and I'm not working with any of them, uh, and I'm not privy to the data. But, um, yeah, you have to wonder if uh, one of the things that you could do is uh, a really elaborate hoax. And uh, I think that maybe the Bigfoot people uh, have succumbed to confirmation bias and have looked at uh, DNA data in a very hopeful fashion. But I also think that um, there's the next generation of sort of problem, if you want to think of it, that we face will be someone who comes into it with malice aforethought and has looked at the data, knows what it means, and knows exactly where to go to produce a really convincing data set. Okay, now, if you think about it, uh, when I, as a scientist, look at data, I don't get the, the raw sequence reads, for example. I get the gene sequence, which is, say, one gene, and I accept that. And I just take that, that from my colleagues as, okay, this is what they got, and let's see and, and check to see that I basically agree with uh, the um, results. But I do not reproduce the experiment. And uh, it would be extraordinary for me to demand the sample so that I could do it myself. Most of the data, most of the experiments are not repeated. So I'm just looking at GATCs and thousands of them. Uh, I could make up anything. Yeah, let's jump ahead, though. If, let's say, someone did do that, wouldn't that be, let's someone say someone faked a Bigfoot DNA sample. Wouldn't that be such an extraordinary, goes back to that old thing, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. You say it would be like unheard of to ask for the for the stuff. Yes. But if this was Bigfoot, I think someone would, you know, you have to go to unheard of, I think. to. And if they did go to unheard of and got the stuff, the blood or whatever, uh, you know, hair, scat, 
toenail would, I guess, well, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to get it, right? Because it would be hoaxed. That would they be, would, you know, uh, well, or, you know, or, and if they got something like the blood, I guess, you know, that, that could be just passable in general, would you be able to figure it out or would it be that sophisticated? It would be, um, with the actual samples, uh, you have a great chance of actually figuring it out, really putting it to rest at that point. And that, that's your, your final, um, sort of saving grace, you want to think of it, is that you could say, well, no, we need corroboration. And that's um, one of the things that with the uh, Ketchum study was grossly not happening. I, mean, I don't know how closely you followed that. but uh, Fairly closely, but I'm giving up on following it now. Well, I mean, I think, and that's called for. Uh, you know, and I, I would say that people that won't produce the data, first of all, uh, and then secondarily, are, seem very disinterested in corroborating it with someone that would actually know something, are not worth our time and effort. But... Anyway, if you go back and, and you think about, okay, now how can I sort of sniff this out? Corroboration would be your final fallback position, that it would have to fall, samples would have to fall into the hands of someone that you truly trusted who could do this. And that person, I think, before they're going to sign on and, and do anything, would have to know the full provenance of those samples. I mean, I'm not going to take a big bag of hair. Okay? <laughs> oh, shit, because I, I was going to mail you some after the interview. Yeah, and so is everybody else. <laughs> so, you know, boom, there it is. Okay, that's Bigfoot. I could spend a billion years chasing garbage. And if somebody wanted to, you know, basically frustrate you, they could send you crap samples. Oh, oh, yeah, doggone, that's the wrong one. That was bag 21. We should have sent you bag 20. Oh, God. You know, play that game for a while or um, just, you know, just be very unwilling to give you anything. Ain't nobody got time for that. Well, the other thing is is that there's a lot of expense involved. And, and so at some point, if you're going to do full genomic, genomic sequencing, we're talking some serious money. And, and so, I mean, you need to, you need people to really give you uh, uh, some decent support. It's not something that you're going to walk into my lab and say, okay, I want a genomic sequence on this within the next six months. Well, I can't just do that. So, I mean, it, it's right. You can't just be like, hey, listen, stop everything, guys. I got to take care of this bag right. of hair that somebody sent me. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You don't have that like in your basement. You can't do that in your basement. So, no, I don't. And that's uh, so. I mean, there's, if you're a real scam artist. You know how the system works, and you know how you can game it for a long time. And so in that time, uh, maybe you go on Kickstarter and collect a half a million and move to Argentina, you know, before anybody catches up with you. I mean, I don't know what their plans are. Jeez. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's so many interesting things. But well, that's it. That, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say the scary part of what you're saying is I actually feel like the possibility of some kind of grand Bigfoot hoax I guess I see how you're saying you'd scheme it somehow uh, to, to to make a bunch of money and leave town or whatever. But uh, I think the the possibility of someone hoaxing Bigfoot DNA is almost less likely than hoax hoaxing DNA just for nefarious reasons. Like you know, you're saying you know what I mean. You're saying that if somebody could game the system, it's going to end up being like some kind of nutcase serial killer or something like that. That you know somehow games the system, not not someone faking uh, Bigfoot DNA only because it would be so crazy that we'd have to have the double same, you know, we'd have to check this and check this like six times before people were accepting of that. Oh, yeah. And it would get yeah, caught I mean, in the mess, but, you know, some random, you know, some random uh, criminal doing something really nefarious, 
probably wouldn't have the stringent level of of corroboration needed that Bigfoot would require. Well, the um, the interesting thing to to think about is that uh, I think three or four years ago in the New York Times was published an article by a group in Israel who actually uh, did fake a DNA profile. And they, and they pointed out that it could be used for uh, purposes of framing someone for mm. a crime they didn't do or placing them at a, a crime scene that, you know, they were nowhere near. Uh, and so, yeah, it can be done. It can be done. And that's, and that's I'm talking physical evidence. That's DNA profile evidence, and they, they had come up with ways to do that. So, yeah, like I said, that's that's the scary stuff. That's probably more likely than than some Bigfoot enthusiast figuring out how to do this stuff. Well, or yeah, <laughs> other other people. But yeah, this is the thing I worry about: is that somebody will will dry lab it and come up and and take a look uh, at um, the data from Neanderthals, and uh, they're very close human relatives. And the, the very very striking thing: this is so tailor made for a hoax is that when we go back and look, uh, having to be very careful uh, because it is tricky to figure out which is authentic Neanderthal because the, the sequences are so old, they're heavily fragmented and mutated. But when we look, they're 99% plus identical. And what that really comes down to is we look at the, the bone structure, the, the cranial structure, the teeth even of Neanderthals, and they're very different. And what that means is that relatively trivial changes in DNA sequences can lead to really interesting changes in the organism. You know, a Neanderthal uh, would probably be able to rip us apart, uh, you know, because there was so much, uh, hev- their muscles were so much heavier, hmm. so strong. And it were, <clears throat> the number of changes required to, to produce an organism like that from uh, our ancestors, very minimal. That would suggest if I go in and come up with a sequence, a genome, and I pick and choose very carefully, I can go back and say, oh, yeah, but see, these are the hybrids, and they only have to be changed like here, 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 and here uh, in controlling genes, and you've got this whole different beast. Hmm. And so I've been waiting for that for a while, and I haven't seen it yet. Oh, Um, God. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and trust me, it'll probably come. And uh, I think there's ways around that. Uh, I think there's ways to uh, uh, discover that looking at um, gene expression patterns or whatnot. Uh, again, though, the, the major thing would be, well, yeah, you're going to have to show me the body. Yeah, and it's gonna right, be awesome. right. I really trust, you know, the Pope, someone who would come in there and say, yeah, this is, I saw this is real. <laughs> well, he just left Argentina, so. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> Maybe that was his Kickstarter campaign. The DNA thing, I feel like if anything, it'll be like this. If it, It'll be this quasi-stepping stone, but it'll never be really good enough until you get the actual Bigfoot. I think so. Yeah. I, I think, you know... And you worry about people getting shot. Wait till they... <laughs> wait till more, uh, more, you know, Bigfoot DNA happens. Then there'll be people running around all the time trying to get it. Well, it, you know, the thing that, that was interesting to me about the the uh, paper, because I, I did get a look at uh, the uh, text of the paper. I never got the supplemental data from the catching group, and it was apparent that samples were very abundant and, and coming from multiple locations uh, across the U.S. and Canada, apparently, if I remember right. And uh, and they, they had some, some things that um, the story just falls apart if you if you then go think about it, because uh, – 
I mean, it just doesn't work. And that's where you're right. They have to have a body or something to corroborate because the, the hypothesis that they have is just frankly unbelievable that this new hybrid species survived, but there's nobody out there, 16 different samples, and not one of them had an ancestral Neanderthal mitochondrion in it. They're all human. Please, come on. We're not that stupid. And, and that's, that's what I would tell people when they ask me, is that I, I think one of the things that I saw when I read the paper is that people hoping that a lot of other folks who read it wouldn't know the difference mm. and would just take it. And, and that's where I see Banal of America and what I guess you would call the Banal think tank. <laughs> and this could be critical where you come in there and say, hold it, wait a minute, guys, here's what you got to have, you know, or, or try to teach people about how to parse the data or argue back and forth, pro and con, with people that basically know what the arguments are, uh, back and forth one way or the other, so that other people who maybe aren't up on all the technical aspects can get a comprehensible sort of picture of what's going on. Because lesser-known devices, these guys can tell stories that sound really good, really good. Well, I appreciate your uh, hopes for <laughs> what I can do. You know, I'm trying to build this bridge between the two sort of camps, you know, and, and come up with ways to figure this stuff out. That's really, yeah. you know, the only way we're going to figure it out is we figure out how to figure it out. Yep. So that yeah, I, seems I, to be the problem here. Well, and I think also uh, I like the idea when you talk to Sharon Hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, I thought that was a wonderful program. No, thank I, you. I know that you got some heat for that. But what I really liked was the idea of talking to people that you could have under any circumstances legitimately just yelled at, you know, for errors and mistakes. Instead, you went back and had a conversation and then began to figure out where you had common ground. And I think, you know, that was brilliant. And, oh, thanks. Uh, def- definitely, in my opinion, needed. Now, I know you're probably going to have people who would say, oh, you can't talk to skeptics, you can't work with them. Uh, and I would say, you know what you do? Exactly what Tim Bernal did. He, he found the one who was workable, and, and he worked with her, and, and it was great. You know, and she came up with the same thing I would tell you. What would you do? Well, I would look for multiple lines of converging evidence for Bigfoot. And, uh, you know, I talk about, uh, and so it can be so simple that somebody can come up with an idea uh, when you have a group of people who really will brainstorm. And so that's where I'd say the banal think tank might be really important, uh, that you could bring people together and say, oh, yeah, by the way, if you have a human DNA sample or a blood sample, uh, check it for a tetanus titer. And, you know, one simple test because Bigfoot ain't getting a tetanus vaccine. Yeah. But if somebody's admixed their own DNA in there or uh, blood, odds are they'll have a titer if they're from the U.S. or Canada. And it will show up instantly. And it will be end of story for that sample. But, you know, if you have people brainstorming from different perspectives, it can really work well. Well, that's why I want to have you on the show, actually, to, to, you know, that's why I'm throwing these things at you. Like, how can we actually get to the bottom of this? This is sort of a, it's less an interview and obviously more of a conversation, sort of like a, a bowl session to figure out where, where the hell we need to go from here. Because, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I don't want to, I want to know the answer <laughs> before they put me in the ground. That's all. 
Well, I'm uh, hoping that we'll at least be able to winnow it down to where we can say, you know, some things work, some things don't work. And one of the things that, that I would say, and, uh, and you know, the, the good news is that I think there's a lot of people out there that you're going to be able to work with, uh, but not everybody. Mm. Uh, let's just face it. Uh, I'll just come out and tell you that in science, uh, we work collaborative, collaboratively in our group all the time. But we have ended collaborations uh, because people were not workable. Uh, they were kind of jerks or whatever. We just didn't get along, and so we just parted ways. It won't be any different when you talk about the camps, skeptic versus believer or whatnot. Right. But, but I, I think, you know, there's some good people out there, and uh, I would hope that you can be able to maybe bring them to your website or go to theirs, uh, working back and forth, post things, um, have conversations. Um, I've been able to, uh, do you know uh, Guy Edwards? Uh, it sounds familiar. Bigfoot Lunch Club. Okay, yeah. He's been very open to the idea of, hey, here's how, you know, if I was going to do this guy, this is what I would look for, or these are the questions I would ask Dr. Ketchum that she's not answering at this point. And so he's been really good about saying, okay, yeah, what would you do, and, and listening to that. And, uh, you know, there's a couple other uh, people out there, uh, Parascience Journal, George Stadolsky, I think, is trying to do things. Well, we need to, like like you said earlier, you know, we need to get rid of these non-starters. And situations As like this, this Ketchum thing, you know, it, it got a lot of hype. It was looked at. It was, you know, it doesn't hold up, and now it's time to move on. That's kind of the my take on it, you know. You know, that's the perfect take, and, and that is exactly the scientific perspective. Hey, this is a great idea. This is really cool. Let's explore it. Oh, okay, this data is not consistent. Let's try something else. And that's how it goes. Somebody told me the key in science, to succeed in science, is to have a lot of ideas because most of them don't work. <laughs> here to tell you it's true. So, yeah, if you can, if you can muster that kind of uh, guts to do that, but you can see that this is where confirmation bias and getting wedded to your ideas or whatever reasons. I don't understand Dr. Ketchum's motivations, but uh, those can interfere. I'd like and to think so, they come from a place of good I uh, think they do. intentions, but I just, uh, you know, I don't I know agree. enough of really the inside baseball part of it. I don't think anybody really does. Well, maybe maybe somebody does. I think. Well, yeah, no, I'm sure the yeah, yeah, I'm sure the players know, but <laughs> you, the, know uh, I mean. you know the interview I haven't heard. Maybe maybe you have, and the one I'm very curious to hear is she has that list of co-authors. Mm-hmm. Man, how I would love to know what one of the co-authors feels about having their name linked to what I would call a major debacle. How'd that work for you? You know, how much input did you have? Well, good, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing I think you revisit like in a year or two or five, yeah. you know, and in five years yeah. see where these people are and see what, you know, then they'll really be willing to talk. I, if, if, uh, uh, I don't know. I, you know, there's uh, sometimes there's problems with authorship in science, and one of the things that happens with uh, people once they get into the National Academy is that folks want to attach to them, and so a lot of times they they sort of uh, adopt your name, put your name on papers that maybe you don't contribute very much to. Yeah, is that allowed? Like, if you and I exchange emails, can I turn around and put it like? You know, put it in my paper that <laughs> as you as one of the authors, or because they don't like directly quote these people, they're just sort of listed as like, you know, contributors almost, right? It's okay. 
It's okay, provided. Now, remember, they published the, the Ketchum thing came out in a very, very peculiar format. Not the typical scientific journal. Right. It's like a homemade journal, if you will. It really is, as far as I can tell. And that, that I believe, was to bypass, really evade uh, formal peer review that they weren't succeeding at. And I'll just tell you honestly, Tim, when I saw what uh, was presented to me as the paper that supposedly she published, and I take it as it probably was, uh, it's no wonder that they couldn't get through peer review. I mean, it was just bad. Um, uh, uh, logic errors, uh, very poorly written, and then uh, Sharon Hill actually, uh, or the, uh, maybe the JREF Foundation, uh, pointed out that there were literature citations in there that were bogus. Yeah, April and Fool's papers were, and stuff like that. Yeah, and so, uh, and then the excuses that came out were mind-bogglingly stupid, and you can quote me there. But uh, <laughs> going back to um, the um, the idea of how journals function. Uh, right now, it, when you send papers in, all of the authors are notified by the journal that your name is associated with this paper and uh, you have to approve uh, and, and everybody has to say, yes, I was part of this, I agree. No, they like uh, sign off on it. Sign off on it completely and include even now uh, conflict of interest statements because some of the stuff that we do may have uh, implications for drug or patenting. And so you have to say, look, I'm not paid by uh, a pharmaceutical company or whatever. Or if you are, you have to disclose that so that people can, can say, oh, gee, I wonder if that affects his opinion. But anyway, the full thing is very carefully vetted by the journal. And so I'm going to vet that, you know, none of that applied here, that, that they just did, she just did, whomever. I don't know who was responsible, whatever they felt like. And uh, uh, you had this veneer of what appeared to be scientific respectability, and I think that they were hoping that nobody would get through the candy coating. Right. And, uh, and you can see what happened when they did. It's almost like a reverse Condon report. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, except these guys were right. Okay, I'm not sure Condon was uh, necessarily right in everything that he said. And, in fact, I, I don't agree with him, but I, I have to sit there and say, yeah, um, I think that uh, they got uh, they got ripped a new one publicly. Mm, yeah. And that was unfortunate. But, uh, you know, I mean, there were a lot of alternatives to this, and, and one of them would have been not to go through traditional peer review, but to ask people that were highly respected in the field to review it and be able to place their comments. Well, yeah, I mean, have you are you following the Brian Sykes stuff? Because that's, you know, he's yeah, a... As he, the, he, as, yeah, the honest broker. Uh, or I guess he would be the honest broker, but they don't want him or don't like him. Or yeah, something. I don't even mean in relation to their stuff. He's doing his own study of Bigfoot DNA. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it may, we may get the good stuff Eventually, but it may come out of England with his uh, research. It could be. And my guess would be, um, again, it's just a guess. Uh, and the, the other thing I should should say that we didn't emphasize, and I think you probably agree with me, is that the failures of, of this particular group, Dr. Ketchin's group, don't tell us anything in reality about whether or not Bigfoot does or does not exist. We can't tell from her data. You know, I think that she has failed to prove the case. What the reality is is still open. Absolutely, so yeah. We just leave it as an open question. 
And what I don't want to give people the idea is that by debunking one very poor quality scientific study uh, that we're then saying, and see, all Bigfoot researchers are wrong or whatever about them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It it goes no further than Dr. Ketchum. It's one study that was rejected. End of story. But, yeah, I think if I had to guess if you made me fill out the the form like the – NCAA tournament. <laughs> there you go. Today, I'd say what you're going to hear from Dr. Sykes is I got a lot of dog and human and coyote DNA, but nothing that I would call definitive Bigfoot. Wow. I'm All right. I'm going to guess that's how it'll come out. But you know what? It'd be so cool if it wasn't. I mean, exactly. That's yeah. Though that was a disappointed oh, wow because I'm hoping that he. I'm hoping because he's a world-renowned sort of uh, researcher. I mean, isn't he? He is, and uh, an expert in these areas, so that you can be confident that when he's willing to come forward and say, you know what, I think we have something, you should pay attention. Exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm telling you, I live for that day. I mean, people a lot of times I think don't understand. Uh, and, and again, I saw another skeptic who came back and was writing about the problems of being a skeptic. Uh, we love these subjects too. And I really, I wouldn't come back if I wasn't intrinsically fascinated by some of the topics. And so it would be so cool. Uh, I mean, I'm going to tell you honestly, if, if I thought David Jacobs had the answer, I would be cozying up to him, you know, uh, lighting his cigarettes, uh, opening doors for him, everything I could do to be on his paper because that's the Nobel Prize. Yeah. If he's right. He's not. <laughs> but, sorry, David. Yeah, so, if you're listening, well, sorry. news to him. But, <laughs> yeah, he's uh, waiting for the what? invitation to uh, to Europe there for the for the coronation. And he will continue to wait. That's my prediction. Let me ask, actually, let me take you down a whole different path. Because uh, I know you do the research into um, Alzheimer's. That's your big field, right? Right. Okay. Have you, and I don't want to put you on the spot here, but I presume you've heard of this whole thing with lion's mane mushrooms? No. What uh, is it? Uh, this guy, Paul Stamets. Okay. He, he's done, I guess, lab research that uh, has a remarkable effect uh, for Alzheimer's patients. Okay. He's a mushroom, he's a mushroom expert. Okay. And he, he it, his article on it was at the Huffington Post, so he's no, you know, it's not from the examiner. Okay. Yeah, I see him here. So, yeah. yeah, take a look at it if you can. And he has discovered a miracle magic cure for Alzheimer's? Not necessarily, but uh, it helps, I guess. Okay. I'll let you, you're the expert, I'll, you know. Uh, yeah, there, it turns out that, uh, actually I was talking with Jeremy Vaney about this um, earlier uh, lots of people have uh, uh, medicinal approaches to uh, AD, and one of them has been curcumin, the spice, and things that, that uh, sometimes have lab tests in mice, for example, that, that show real promise. The problem with the mouse test, mouse models, is that they don't mimic the human disease very well, and I feel like they've led us astray. But um, there are um, certainly... Uh, Alzheimer's has an environmental component to it that we do not understand. And uh, probably one of those things are diet and environment. And so I, I wouldn't say offhand that I would say, oh, no, this is, this is absolutely not good. 
uh, I have to look at it very carefully and see what, what he's talking about in terms of mechanism. But no, I mean, it, it's just one of many yeah. uh, that are ideas that are out there. Yeah. The only, like I said, I had, I'd heard about it recently, so I figured I'd run it by you because uh, I figured it was right in your, in your wheelhouse. I think you'll find it interesting. Take a look at what he has to say. Yeah. Well, you know, what's happened to us with Alzheimer's is um, we, the field is in a major funk. Okay, I mean, we we are at um, a real uh, problem point, and not unlike ufology, if you want to think about it in, in that kind of light. Um, we we can't tell which way really to go. That we've had uh, some uh, highly hoped for therapies that have failed, and and not just like they didn't work; they killed the patients. Wow! Kind of stuff. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah, and so, uh, you know, we're sitting there thinking, like, my gosh, is our basic model correct? And so we have these, these battles going on right now, back and forth. Now, I'll, I'll just tell you that I, I believe that the, the mainstream idea that, that this beta amyloid protein that accumulates is problematic, uh, but I don't believe that the, the cure of Alzheimer's disease is as simple as eliminating these deposits in the brain that it's going to be a little bit more complex in getting rid of what we call senile plaques and their vascular issues and other things in there uh, that have to be dealt with. But, oh, my God, are we uh, – we're just spinning around and, and um, you know, I think trying everything we can. But, uh, you know, you talk about what kind of got me interested is that thinking of um, camps, like skeptic and believer, mm-hmm. that's a little foreign to me because in – Science, we we don't really have that. We we're all kind of on the same team. Yeah, we yeah. We hate each other. And we, seriously, we fight each other. Like you can't believe there isn't any camp. We don't need one. It's a free for all. Mm. And so we will do battle all the time. And and we we don't divide immediately into okay, I believe this or or that so much. But we end up kind of doing that. Yeah. But it's it's uh, it, it's interesting where we are and the parallels between ufology so to speak so fun stuff to to kind of ponder well do you have you looked at the have you heard about the whole theories that somehow it's connected to mad cow disease and that kind of thing oh yeah what are your thoughts on that uh you know what part of that i firmly believe now let me just clarify okay (laughs) not not mad cow disease in the infectious thing like okay you eat hamburger and it gets into you and and uh, that then causes the human form, new variant crucified Jakob disease. But the idea of prions, the infectious proteins, and how they transmit themselves uh, by uh, basically converting a uh, bad protein, converts a good protein into a bad protein, and they kind of spread like water freezing. Um, that idea has a lot of cachet uh, amongst my scientific colleagues, and, and I do think that there is something to that as to how um, these things, uh, like Alzheimer's amyloid, have certain prion-like properties. And, um, uh, you know, you can think about uh, um, we can actually transmit the Alzheimer's pathology from animal to animal by taking some of the amyloid and sticking it into a undiseased brain and kind of watching it spread out. Oh, God. Yeah. And so uh, that it's not, um, it's not a transmissible uh, sort of um, disease like the mad cow prions, for example, but it does have a lot of common elements, and that um, will be something that will be important for us 
to, uh, to recognize and control. Now, one of the things that we're doing in our group is we're looking at um, brain injury, traumatic brain injury, as for like military people who get ex- uh, exposed to IEDs and other uh, damaging events, and trying to figure out uh, the commonalities between the injury response and the ultimate generation of Alzheimer's disease. And we think we're seeing some common aspects there. And so we're trying to get um, the Defense Department to allow us to uh, study these soldiers uh, a little more carefully as they they return. This is, again, it would be a spreading phenomenon. It's similar to the whole idea of uh, of the football players. It is. It is. In fact, um, we one of the last papers we published just at the end of the year is about uh, a phenomenon called dementia pugilistica, which is uh, uh, in reference to boxers. Right. And um, they end up. Uh, oftentimes with uh, what appears to be uh, dementia-like Alzheimer's, but when you take their brains apart on autopsy, you find that the pathology is quite distinct, and it's uh, a different animal than Alzheimer's, but they end up biochemically. They end up totally demented. And so our idea, and it's not unique to us, but the idea is that the two pathways, Alzheimer's disease and dementia pugilistica, may have some common aspects. And we, we might be able to figure out uh, how to stop them early, if you want to think of it that way, by getting back to the core kind of uh, thing that sort of ignites them. Right. Uh, so if you can figure out, like, what causes the Alzheimer-like symptoms in the in the football players, you might be able to figure out what causes Alzheimer's in general. Yeah, or uh, how it progresses. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, that's what's getting us now. So when we've gone through and uh, looked at the brains, what we've done is not the standard um, – sort of histology, we're actually doing the biochemistry, and uh, our techniques are immensely uh, sensitive, and we believe that we see that the damage goes further than people had thought that it did, and possibly, although we can't, we don't know anything about the actual appearance, may start very, very quickly after one or two instances, which is quite troubling if you have a kid playing football. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So... Yeah, so we're really trying to figure out, you know, what does it take? Now, the one thing to keep in mind is that football, dementia pugilistica, those are chronic uh, situations where people get blow after blow after blow. Right. The military one is incredibly violent, one shock and done. Mm. And, I mean, it's just stunningly uh, hard on these brains. So supersonic waves traveling through the skull and the brain bouncing back and forth, so you can picture that. Uh, Pretty god-awful. What would cause a supersonic wave, like an explosion? Yes, and uh, more of the what was really interesting is when we started talking to the military people, is that we are, I don't know how your mind works, but mine tends to be dichotomous. Okay, one thing, black or white, yes or no, up or down, and so they talk about IED. It's an explosion. Okay, one wave, and the the brain bounces back and forth. It's called coup and counter coup, uh, and you get damage on both sides. But it turns out these IEDs are often um, many, uh, like artillery shells, strung together, and they never go synchronously. It's a daisy chain. It says boom, 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 very, very quickly. So one wave has hit. The brain is bouncing back wow, and it gets hit by a like second. That. I mean, it's just horrible. So uh, really, really, uh, there's no good civilian analogs to these things. So we're, we're hoping that um, if we can figure out, you know, how does the brain manage this incredible uh, onslaught of damage, 
we can that one is interesting to us because we know precisely when it occurred. And then from that point on, we can follow all subsequent events with a precise orientation in time. The other ones, sporadic Alzheimer's disease, for example, utterly impossible to time. We, we just know that somewhere around age 70 or something, this person had problems. The, the chronic traumatic encephalopathies, uh, long-term blows to the head. So you can see why we got very interested in the military thing. It could be uh, something where we know exactly what the inception date was and everything that transpired thereafter. Yeah, you can apply a timeline to it and really. Uh, That's what we hope. Figure stuff out now. I've noticed. I've kind of always found this sort of thing interesting. Now, is is instances of uh, beyond the Alzheimer-like symptoms that we're talking about with the soldiers and the uh, the pugilist uh, item. Uh, these instances of Alzheimer's growing? Are we seeing more and more people getting this disease? And I guess the question is, you know, can you trace it back in a sense? Because you don't really hear too many stories of ancient times, but I guess they don't really, they would classify it as something differently. Or maybe people didn't live to 70 back then, so, so you had less instances of it. But is it is it something that sort of emerged at some point in history, you think? Or is it has it been there all along and maybe just now that everybody has a Facebook page, you know that their uncle has Alzheimer's <laughs> or something? No, you're absolutely right. It, it is, in fact, an emerging problem. And it's uh, what we would call, if you want to think of it, uh, another civilization disease. Uh, one of the first ones being polio, believe it or not. Epidemics of polio occurred when we cleaned up the water supply, of all things. I mean, it sounds stupid, but when we prevented people from dying from uh, typhoid fever, we also prevented them from being infected with the polio virus very early in life, which would actually protect you against paralysis. When they got infected later, they got paralyzed. And so we had these huge epidemics of polio appear. Same idea with Alzheimer's. And I think you hit it right on the head. Human longevity has almost doubled since 1900 in the, in the Western countries. And Alzheimer's disease, the sporadic Alzheimer's disease, is a disease primarily of the aged and the elderly. And so if you think about doing everything wrong, we've done that. We've increased our lifespan. We have unlimited quantities of calories. We're all getting fatter. Instead of working out in the fields chopping wood, you know, I mean, the most I do today is I, I type Twitter messages. <laughs> so we're, we're sedentary. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've changed our diets. We've changed everything about our lives. And it, it has caught up with us with Alzheimer's disease. And I'm telling you, the projections to uh, 2050, which is where most of them cease now, are utterly frightening and stunning that our gross national product will be consumed taking care of AD patients if the rates continue unabated. We've got to find some way to stave this off. And so if it's mushrooms, you know, uh, people are going to look at it, trust yeah. me. That will, that will get a fair look. Uh, if it's diet and exercise, in, in fact, um, on uh, PBS this week, they had a fundraiser and uh, Deepak Chopra and uh, Rudy Tanzi, a very famous uh, Alzheimer's researcher, were out there trying to teach people how to protect themselves against AD. And one way to do that is to stay active cognitively, in other words, stay engaged, doing stuff, um, crossword puzzles, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and they even have uh, programs. But also eating right, exercising, you know, the things that Grandma said, they're <laughs> becoming critical, absolutely yeah. critical. Or we are going to have a, a disaster 
coming. So yes, you are right. We we didn't hear about it before because people never lived long enough. And now, man, are we in trouble? We just didn't. Yeah, it's like a catch twenty two. It is. It is. And uh, I mean, everything has changed. Uh, I when I was a kid, uh, McDonald's. We had one McDonald's in our town, and we had to drive across town to go there, and it was a big treat. And so, you know, you got McDonald's, you know, once every three months. <laughs> okay? Now it's on every corner. Yeah. And some of these poor kids are, well, they're living off of fast food, and it's not going to work. Um, there's a, a guy from the University of Chicago um, who has uh, published some some interesting studies about how he predicts the um, actual um, typical age at death, the uh, uh, life expectancy. His name is Olshansky. Yeah. Uh, S. J. Olshansky. Uh, he's predicting that our generation will see the first declines in longevity than his, that has been seen basically in historic times, because we're going to have more kids who are obese, uh, have diabetes. And uh, other things that will lead to heart disease and cancer that will kill them earlier. Is that, you think, just an American thing, or is that going to be a global thing? It turns out, uh, that's a very good question, uh, it turns out it's global. And as um, as countries sort of um, uh, develop as we do, uh, their diets change. They eat more red meat, uh, right. more junk food, or whatever, however you they want. They want to be like America. Yeah, and uh, the stuff is cheap, and... Um, uh, it's uh, engineered to uh, to make you want to eat a lot of it. Um, yeah, they're tending to uh, kind of follow along. Oh and, God! Uh, so, yeah. The, so the demographic curve is affecting a lot of countries uh, beyond the U.S. and uh, and Europe. So um, it, it's it is not looking good at, at this stage. It's it's absolutely frightening, and that's part of the reason that Rudy Tanzi is out there. Is that the Alzheimer's Association is seeing the problems, recognizing that nothing, nothing in terms of cure is coming online or is even anticipated in a foreseeable future. The only thing we can do is train people to take better care of themselves. I mean, that's where we are. 21st century medicine, do what grandma says. That's the best I got for you. All right. <laughs> well, I, there's two, you, you brought up a couple things here. One's in my notes and the other is something that's concerned me for a while. And it kind of goes along with what you're saying here, but something kind of is, I find the ubiquity of hand sanitizer very off, off-putting. <laughs> this is turning into a bit of a Larry David show, but I mean, what do you, do you think that that could have a bad effect on us long-term because people are too, you know, too disinfected all the time? Well, you know, there's a, a theory that uh, we are uh, too clean, right? And that has led to a lot of the rise in allergies. And uh, I believe there's something to that. But these are these are complicated because the, the human environment is so complex; it's hard to to tease everything out. Mm. But uh, yeah, some of the the triclosan and other things that we put into the antibiotics are environmentally persistent, and uh, and they will get out uh, into the environment. Uh, and possibly create problems. But um, one thing you have to watch out for, it's the same thing as, as taking an antibiotic chronically. Uh, all you're doing is challenging the microbes and, and to evolve. Right. Okay? The weak ones will die, and the bad boys will take over. That's what I mean. You uh, think, like, eventually it could, it could uh, it's just, I just feel like it could have deleterious effects on 
on people in the long run because, like you said, something could mutate. You know, we could end up with some kind of awful disease that uh, sprung from all this. But I guess would we ever even know if that was the reason behind it? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) I'll just, I'll go back and tell you, honestly, if you study the history of microbiology and antibiotics in particular, what you see is, uh, I guess, what we would call um, the Red Queen hypothesis, the Red Queen of uh, Alice in Wonderland. Here it takes all the running you can do just to stay in one place. Uh, you go ahead and, and provide an antibiotic like penicillin in the 1950s, and you may go ahead and, and take care of the target, which at that time was a lot of gram-positive bacteria, uh, but someone else will find that environment just fine. Huh. And so you get rid of the gram-positives, and here comes the rise of the gram-negative rods. And so you change your antibiotics to, to defeat them, and the next thing you know, you've got a resurgence of now uh, bacteria that have figured out how to defeat the original antibiotics and have exchanged those things. So we have these constant battles of defeating the enemy and having them come up with countermeasures or changing entirely. I mean, it is the toughest situation you can imagine. It's gone on and on. A great example, gonorrhea. And we've had this this wonderful, uh, not so wonderful, uh, series of events that uh, when uh, veterans came back to the U.S. Uh, in the 1970s, uh, they had brought gonorrhea with them, and they they brought the first penicillinase-producing Neisseria gonorrhea. And so the the old treatment was just a good uh, dose of penicillin, and that was no longer effective. So we changed to tetracycline. And you know the next story is that you keep using that, and what happens? tetracycline-resistant Neisseria gonorrhea. So we changed to stuff like ciprofloxin. Yeah. And you, you already know the ending for that one, that eventually they will defeat every drug we use. Huh. So you end up with infections that were easily treatable that constantly evolve to plague you. And so when you have stuff that's transmitted at the rates that uh, gonorrhea are, uh, man, it's really hard to stop. I mean, you've got billions of events uh, and so you you can kill 99.99999%. You still have enough bacteria left to repopulate overnight. This is what I tell the students all the time, is that all it takes is one. And then tomorrow, it's worse than you can imagine because that one, if the elements, the genetic elements it's got are mobile, will give it to everybody else. And, and it's just crazy how they communicate. All this totally unsuspected. When I started graduate school many years ago, people said, well, don't go into infectious diseases. That's a waste of time because if you want to get tenure, back to the tenure conversation again, uh, you need something that's going to be positive and everything has been solved. Antibiotics (laughs) are going to take care of everything. You know, don't go there, Tyler. That's stupid. You waste your whole career. Whoa, wrong. They were much tougher than we thought. So, yeah, could could we get – will we get – Absolutely. All you're doing is challenging them. So whether you're an HIV patient who's taking uh, the highly active antiretroviral therapy to uh, shut down the HIV, those viruses are ultimately going to figure that out, and they're going to defeat that. And uh, this is what we have. is uh, Nature is far more clever than we are. That's... So we can hold them off. Yeah. That's uh, spooky stuff. The other ubiquitous uh, aspect of life today that kind of spooks me out, and since you've looked at 
you know, the brain in depth, or at least uh, certainly more than I have. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, is is just the the proliferation of cell phones, and I'm concerned that sometime down the line it's going to turn out that they're probably bad for you. You know, but everybody has them now. So, you know, are we looking at a potential here where, or I guess the better way to put it was, do you think these things have been vetted well enough or should there be some pause uh, regarding, you know, overly using these things? Well, I would uh, uh, think that uh, kind of along the lines that you do is that as we let them penetrate everywhere um, and people use them constantly, that rare events that formerly we didn't see may begin to crop up over the population. And I'll just tell you, I don't have any data right now that makes me say, oh, my God, put them down right. at this stage. But stand by. And I'll also say that one of the things that you have to consider is we have a rule at our institutions that kids under 18 are not allowed in radiation use areas. It's basically the federal law. And that's because... The younger that they are, the growing kids are very much more susceptible to radiation than an adult. And today I was walking to the store and here's some kids, probably 11 years old, in deep conversation on his cell phone. Right, right. This kid's right like there. as young as like eight, you know, or yeah. even younger. <laughs> this kid's like in kindergarten that have cell phones. It's like, wait a minute. What's, yeah, what's wrong with this picture? So I don't know if that's uh, something that's going to come back to bite us. It's something that would concern me. It is, in fact, radiation. It's not the most necessarily the most dangerous form, but the, the effects, uh, uh, gosh, it, it makes me worry. I, I wish I was more expert in the, in the area of radiation biology, but, uh, yeah. We, and we got now, uh, if you want to think about it in, the, in terms of how drugs are looked at, you know that we uh, test drugs for safety and efficacy, uh, and we have several different tiers, uh, one, two, and three, but the fourth tier is when the, the real rare events come out, and that's basically when the drug is released. So the, the level four testing will reveal events, uh, adverse events that come out in one person in 10,000. We don't see that until the doctors really begin using this in the general population. Right, exactly. And yeah. Report backwards. That's so, the stuff that comes on in the commercial at the very end where they're like explosive diarrhea and all this other stuff you may have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, those things are, um, they're rare, but they can be, uh, extremely serious. And, uh, they're very, very hard to pick up on. Uh, in the kind of studies that we can do practically. I mean, this is just the reality of it. Hmm. Uh, so when uh, people talk about uh, taking uh, a drug for allergies or whatever, uh, that's safe for most of us, but never for 100% of us. And so that's, that's what I kind of worry about, are these cumulative effects or uh, rare effects that are really hard to, to quantify and, uh, and find. And so we, we really depend on the companies who get adverse events reported to them what I'm not clear about is, is anybody uh, necessarily tracking these issues with cell phones? With drugs, for example, the FDA will, will insist on adverse events reports, and then the companies hopefully, hopefully comply huh. in good faith. Sometimes they don't, uh, but for the most part they do. Uh, I, and I don't know who's looking, you know, who's, who's quantifying these effects, if anybody. It could turn into like how, what happened with the cigarette industry. It could. 
you know. If they know anything, they're not going to tell us. That's, I guess, what I'm trying to say. So, well, you know, like, or, you know, I don't even want to say the names of the companies, but you know. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, you're very kind uh, because what I would say is the cigarette industry knew and reasonably should have known their products were uh, addictive and dangerous, and they lied. Okay, I mean, they they got out there and they lied, and they did everything they could to obfuscate and uh, and prevent the the real truth from coming out there. Uh, it's in one sense, yes, they they said things that were technically true, but uh, anybody that understood how things actually worked would know that that argument was bogus, and that they were simply trying to mislead the public, and they got away with it for an awful long time. Yeah. So I don't see anything quite like that with uh, drug companies, but there have been some sad, sad stories. So. I don't, if you remember Vioxx and some other um, anti-inflammatories that uh, had significant side effects that the company chose to ignore. That's the whole bailiwick about the pharmaceutical industry. That whole thing is just scary in general because it wasn't like that back, you know, when you were younger. Well, we didn't have that kind of industry. That's what I mean. Uh, you know, like yeah. this industry sort of sprung up, uh, you know, in the last, what, like, we really burst. Uh, I guess when they could, uh, when they let them start advertising, right? Wasn't that kind of the big watershed moment where things really kind of changed? It certainly did help. And then we've had um, kind of an interesting change of philosophy about what to pursue. Uh, you know, I mean, one of the things that that you need is not so much a cure but a treatment. Uh, and you know, the, the antibiotic thing had kind of been thought to be solved, and so you have these companies sort of looking for new niches, and they certainly found them. Uh, and, and there are a lot of problems to be addressed, and they and they do a lot of, of good things. But, um, you know, Viagra and these other guys, uh, sometimes those are, are uh, invented products that uh, uh, people want uh, that uh, were intended to basically uh, fill niches that nobody even knew existed. And you, you realize Viagra was an accident? I don't know if you've heard that story. No, I was actually I was going to ask you, like, who could... I don't know how anyone with a straight face could have been doing the research to, you know, <laughs> to, to be like, yeah, working on a pill to fucking help people get erections. It's like, how can you look at yourself in the mirror, you know, when there's people that are hurt? So, you know, but that makes sense then if it was an accident. <laughs> well, they were actually looking for, if I recall, uh, things that would increase blood flow. And they began to go ahead and test this in... Um, population, and I think it was intended to be uh, something for cardiac patients, perhaps, to increase perfusion, uh, and they went ahead and they did the study, and it didn't work. It didn't give them the end point that they desired, which would be, let's just, if I'm right, fewer heart attacks or less uh, angina, something along those lines. But as they went down, they would, they would start to inquire, you know, well, uh, any problems, anything you noticed, uh, you know, headaches, Stomach ache. That's what they were going for, and suddenly, this great revelation. Well, yeah, there was one thing kind of funny, and, and uh, I think one of our um, uh, pharmacology instructors said that uh, a lot of the people, the original participants, were insisting that they be given the drugs in perpetuity. <laughs> they didn't want the study to end. Wow. But it was one of those things that they, they hadn't thought about it, but they certainly knew what it was when they had it. So they, they didn't really start looking for it directly. But, hmm. you know, that's, yeah. I guess that's, that's just 
you know, good business. That you I, yeah, like, yeah. I can't fault them for that. I mean, I actually feel yeah. better about that now. <laughs> you know, at least there wasn't but, someone out there like looking for this. But yeah, you're right. The aggressive direct to consumer marketing, so that I can go into my doctor and say, you know what, I want Celebrex or I want this or that, and, and that's where the, the, the doctors also have to be more sophisticated, and they can say, yes, you can have Celebrex provided you don't have sensitivity to sulfa drugs, for example, because if we give it to you, you will catch fire and die. So you know, the doctor's got to help save them, uh, and hopefully that happens. I presume so, right? Or is that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, sometimes uh, strange things can happen. Yeah, you know, the person just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can imagine, yeah. Well, no, there's this thing called the internet. Yes. Oh, well, people can order it. You mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a that's a whole other thing. Who would well, take drugs that they order off the internet? That's another. Oh, you know, I know lots of people do, but you know, don't. Like, <laughs> like you know. Oh, my God. Well, if you recall, uh, in 2009, uh, we had the swine flu, or not swine flu, but H1N1 influenza appeared, and it looked pretty nasty. And people were uh, very concerned. The WHO is talking about a huge pandemic, and we didn't know what the, the human take rate was going to be. Well, we thought it could be a killer flu. Uh-huh. It didn't turn out that way. But at around, I think it, it really became clear in May we had a problem, by September, we were really in trouble. Uh, around September, you could not buy Tamiflu. Couldn't find it at any price. Right, I remember that, yeah. People were buying it on the Internet, and the FDA was going crazy trying to shut down these operations, and about half of them were overseas, so they had no latitude. And they said that the only good thing was that at least some of these companies were just sending sugar pills. Yeah, I was going to say, you just, you know. Just move to Argentina and start selling Tic Tacs. Yeah, and, and know, who would know the difference? And, and the average person probably would not. Uh, and, uh, you know, then you're out of uh, business and they can't find you. So, uh, yeah, it is a dangerous proposition. And, and uh, you know, counterfeit drugs, uh, people don't realize, counterfeit drugs have become a very big problem. That when you go to your pharmacist and are trying to buy things, that they have to be very careful to be sure that they've gotten legitimate things. Uh, through their suppliers. Uh, it, unbelievable. That's scary, too. Jeez. It is. It is, because we're, we're talking about things that people really depend on. And uh, if you remember uh, in China, they had the, the melamine scandal in uh, baby food. And they, they put that in there, that compound in there, to make the, the um, product look like it had more protein. And it's toxic. And uh, uh, oh, I guess... Yeah, uh, so it, it became a real problem, uh, and the Chinese uh, actually handled it uh, pretty aggressively, and I think the responsible parties were executed. <laughs> yeah, they don't mess with you in, in China. Well, good, China. good. If they did it on purpose, you know. They did. Okay. They did. It was, it was uh, you know, if it was just some dude like spilled something in the lab, you know, he could do it he could just off himself, seppuku or whatever that's called. <laughs> I know I would. I'd feel terrible. I'd be like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, these guys were looking to, to make a fast buck, and they, I think they didn't understand how toxic some of these things were. And of course, little kids, babies, are, are not able to take much huh. in terms of uh, toxicants. So it didn't work very well for anybody, unfortunately. Pardon the interruption, but I'm Mike Wilbon. Tony, today is Alien Abduction Day. You ever been snatched by aliens? I'm Tony Kornheiser once. 
The improved uh, kind of tickles a little bit. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. What were they using? A feather duster? No, no, no. Some of them had claws. Ugh. You know, some Ugh. of them had those things that you use to put the logs on the fire. As you can imagine, they all came from Uranus. Yeah, all right, all right, all right. We don't need that. It's a joke we can make Stay all away the from time. That. Now, to, to jump back into the really uh, weird stuff and, and to tie it into this in a way, it's, I made this point when I was on Project Archivist uh, about a couple weeks ago, and I, I guess to, it, it's sort of like it's, you can kind of hang your hat on this if you're into the UFO thing, and, and you know, I kind of poked at, the, at, at some of these more far-out theories in a sense. But if you look at it, uh, they didn't really know anything about germs until rather recently in human history. Right? Right. So all along there was this whole thing existing alongside of us for hundreds, thousands of years that no one even knew about. And then they figured it out. So there's a possibility that, you know, that's all it's going to take. And we'll realize, oh, it's been here all along, but it's this. Yeah. I, I love that idea. I, I Seriously, I heard that episode, by the way. Oh, cool. And uh, so I listen to Archivist all the time. Yeah, it's a good show. It, um, yeah, I, I, I think that's a, a, an excellent way to look at it. And, uh, um, if you want to think about, uh, science and where we are, how many times did you ask me tonight uh, about something and I'd say, well, I don't know. I don't know. And this is what I tell the students all the time is, is that I'm going to make you a little bit uncomfortable, uh, because you'll see that very quickly I can take you right to the edge of what we know, and you're going to realize that what we don't know is infinitely more vast. We've had remarkable accomplishment in the last 300 years, for example, uh, in science and in, in engineering. Remarkable. But what lies beyond is far more vast than what we've really covered. And uh, one of my professors told me that, you know, Tyler, that uh, really the questions basically remain the same. Our answers change, but the fundamental questions remain the same. And I, I think that, you know, you look at it and you, you just have to back up and say, yes, there will be future discoveries. Um, quantum mechanics is great, but guess what? Most of that was put together before we realized there was this dark energy and dark matter. And so we've described 5% of the universe. And it's just stunning when yeah. you think about how little we know. So the the thing that that I would say is I I really like that idea, but I, I talked to Jeff Fritzman about this, and one of the things that you have to be careful about as a scientist is that you you have to be very careful not to mistake yourself for God and think that you know everything or you can explain everything. Right. And th this is what I think a lot of people get upset about, and they say, well, debunkers come in and they they um, have the answer. I, I think that that is. Unfortunately, sometimes correct, and I would say that if people are coming in and they feel like they have to explain everything and they have to have an answer and they have to trash uh, you know, other explanations, that's not the spirit of debunking. That's definitely not the spirit of science. Right. It's like there needs to be an embracing of not just I don't know, maybe from the skeptics, but perhaps on the other side, on the paranormalist side, there needs to be also this idea that I could be wrong. Yeah. I think that, you know, I, I think no one ever acknowledges the fact that they could be wrong. 
I think you're right. <laughs> so that's that's a problem, I think. You know. Well, you know, one of the one of the things that happens is on on some of the the venues, it becomes like a cage match, and and that the w- one person must prevail, hmm. and, and so you, you get into this situation where you know I'm right, you're wrong, and it goes back and forth, and we don't get anywhere. And and so what I would look for is somebody that would say something like, well, you know what, here's what we could do, or I think this doesn't work. Because, but you might look at it this way, if you get into those kind of conversations, it'd be so much more productive. And, and that's what I think we've kind of missed in some ways, too frequently. But yeah, God, I love that germ theory idea. That, that is great. Well, thanks. You can yeah. keep rum with it, man. <laughs> yeah, there's two things. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, go ahead. In light of all this talk about DNA and everything, uh, one of the things that the people in the paranormal community always hang their hat on uh, is this junk DNA thing. Now, they're always like, oh, there's all this junk DNA, and something in there is going to end up being, you know, the key to all this or or all that stuff. You know, they're always sort of like this junk DNA. Junk DNA is sort of always used as this MacGuffin of uh, possibility down the line. You know, but I don't know anything about junk DNA, and I presume you know something about it. So, you know, what, what is the makeup of this junk DNA? And is it really possibly containing some kind of secret that, uh, you know, could connect to aliens or anything like that? Well, that's a, that's a, a kind of a, a good question. And the, I guess the people would say, you know, what is the function of junk DNA? And we can come back and, and say, well, we know that it doesn't really do proteins. But uh, and it varies very quickly compared to the the, uh, the true coding sequences for proteins that can't just change willy nilly without some kind of consequences. But uh, the 64 billion dollar question is, uh, my God, now does junk DNA do something? And in fact, people are finding, yeah, it has more functionality and more import to it than we had previously thought of it. And to call it junk DNA was probably not a good idea, not a good name. So it it may be uh, target sites uh, for uh, things like enhancers functions uh, that express other genes, or it may help it fold properly. Uh, will we find uh, signals in there? You bet. Okay. And uh, one of the things we're doing right now uh, is uh, you know the Human Genome Project. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a thing called genome-wide association studies that look for how markers, mutations linked to various disease states, for example. Now we're on the 10,000 gene or 1,000 genome project, and we're getting trying to get how much human variation there is, with an idea of looking for can we find the markers of diseases, and I suspect that a lot of them are going to show up in what we call junk DNA. Hmm. And uh, the other thing that, that is kind of fun to think about is maybe you've heard about the Personal Genome Project. No, but I'm going to leap to the conclusion that it's something that you can get your own genome done. Yes, and uh, more to the point, post it on the World Wide Web. Weird. I've heard of like people who outsource their genome now to with their sick. There's a guy, you know, he's he's sick, so he got his genome done and put it online so other people could look to see if they could figure out how to help him. Yeah, yeah. Well, these guys, and and you know what? There's a logic to that. If you know the chips are really down and you're you're hoping against hope for some kind of miracle, maybe that's a good thing to do. Yeah. But the the personal genome project was something launched by um, a very, very brilliant scientist at Harvard. His name is George Church. And uh, he got into trouble over the idea of cloning Neanderthals. But this guy is a leader 
in terms of genome analysis, technology, where we're going, all that stuff. He's, he's at the forefront. And what they did is um, one of the things he foresaw is stuff being available on the computer with full histories. And so that data is very important, potentially very valuable. But they posted their entire sequence on there. Okay. The problem with that is that somebody, me, for example, could nose through that and find out things about them I really shouldn't know. And the other problem with it is that we do not, as a group, understand what the sequences tell us. We don't know how to read the whole story. In 20 years, we're going to know more. And that data could be very, very damaging to the person. We don't know good or bad or whatever's in there. But you're taking a risk that no one can quantify and no one can even put parameters to by putting it out there publicly. And I'd say, whoa, that's a big mistake. But eventually we are getting back to the idea of junk DNA. It ain't junk. And at some point we're going to learn how to read it a lot better and we're going to find out things. Hmm. And I hope to hell that what we find out is not damaging to these people. Uh, what we really need are good rules about privacy and uh, how to take care of our sequences. And that's one of the things that, that I hope the Banal Think Tank can, can really get into is getting people educated about how DNA works, what to look out for, and if you are a hybrid, for God's sake, work with an investigator that you trust, you know, because that information could be your life, literally. Uh, one of the things that, that um, if you're interested, uh, you could look on the New York Times about uh, an article uh, Stephen Pinker, who's in the Personal Genome Project, published called My DNA, Myself, and he goes through kind of what he went through. But one of the things that I think that he said, and I know others have said it, oh, gosh, I don't want to know about this gene called APOE. I don't want to know which one I have. And the reason that he declined to know that was that it would uh, possibly reveal your risk for Alzheimer's disease. And so he just doesn't want to know. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask you, what is this, what are these, hor first of all, what are these horrifying things that you could find out? So I know well, to avoid them. And second, you said if someone's a hybrid, they need to be very careful because it could cost, how could it cost them their life? Well, not necessarily cost them their life, but you're going to tell me, if, if you're a hybrid and you come in and allow me to do all the sequence information, mm -hmm. I've got all kinds of interesting goodies on you. Oh, so like so I can find out you're allergic to peanuts or something like that, and then, you know, if, yeah, I, if, I'm, if we have a dispute over the payment, I could just, like, Put a peanut in your sandwich. Yeah. Well, you actually hit on something good. Uh, we could prevent. Sometimes I do. We we could avoid. <laughs> we could save the person's life. But let's just say, for example, uh, like Dr. Pinker, I don't want to know my APOE status because I don't really want to know I'm at risk for Alzheimer's. I'd say that's probably. I mean, it's fine. That's his decision. I would want to know so that, just like you said, I could take steps hmm. to do everything possible to protect myself, like stop eating Big Macs, Ding Dongs, Ho-Hos, Twinkies, all the things I love, okay, uh, to try to, to protect myself. But the other thing that's, that's kind of more interesting to think about is, well, let's say that you decide you want to get long-term health care insurance because now you know your odds for developing Alzheimer's disease are substantially higher than average. Ah, I see. So, you're, yeah, you're an at-risk uh, applicant. Yeah. So I go ahead and I, I type in your name, and I go, oh, Stephen Pinker, APOE4. 
thank you, we decline. That's where those things can get to be really interesting and really sticky. Or a job applicant, for example. Now, this is, at the moment, um, I'm not clear about uh, the legalities. At the, to, this is why I say be really cautious because I don't know what the Genetic Non-Discrimination Act will and will not do in terms of protecting you. But uh, people have been caught attempting to uh, test uh, job applicants and find out what their genotypes were. So if you could get rid of people who would cost your health insurance a whole lot, man, what a, what a you know, boon to your company. See, that's scary because I just I feel like this whole idea of getting that information on people is like a runaway train. Well, I don't no, feel like there's is. a safeguards in place to actually prevent that before it's, before it's overtaken the marketplace, if you will. Well, the other thing is that if you want to have a chill go down your spine, uh, it is kind of fun to listen to the, the really high-powered scientists like Dr. Church because one of the things that he was talking about with Neanderthal cloning was he recognized immediately, I'm paraphrasing, but roughly the conversation with Der Spiegel, the magazine, the article that, that kind of got him into trouble was, uh, well, you could clone Neanderthals, but that wouldn't be permitted. I mean, he immediately came back and clarified the rules and regulations don't allow that, and, and that's true. And then he came back, and I think it was in the same article, uh, but at some point, he, I believe, maybe in his book, but the laws can be changed. Well, isn't that interesting? And, and yes, they can. So there is a Genetic Non-Discrimination Act right now, but you know how dedicated Congress is to protecting all of us. And uh, I just think, you know, you saw how Main Street versus Wall Street went with the financial crisis. I can't imagine that special interests wouldn't have a way to get the information they want when it becomes available. And I'm just kind of pessimistic that way, but I don't trust our politicians to protect us. So, you know, Well, isn't it also the case where you, don't they take DNA from, like, prisoners all the time? So they already yes, have they probably, they could already have a huge database on this stuff anyway. Oh, no, they do. It's called CODIS. And uh, that is the national profiles. Now, these are profiles, not genomic sequences. But, but yeah, they, people are... Could they take the profiles? Like, do they have the access to that information, though, down the line, yeah. or is it like is that stuff like on file where they could get the genome from the from the from the other stuff? It is in fact on file, and it's used. So if you have now the the argument right now before the Supreme Court is, when can you take? I think uh, the samples could it be taken? I think right now it's after conviction that you have to be a convicted criminal. Uh, but I could be wrong on this. I'd have to. Somebody will have to check me. Right. It's probably like that's the debate, right? Or could it be like at the point of arrest? At the point of arrest. And so, you know, when are when do your privacy rights kick in? When is it reasonable for the state to intercede? And of course, there's a an idea that you know you could you you really literally could take dangerous people off the streets quickly or quicker by this particular method, and you can tie them back to uh, samples that have come from crime scenes and then go work backwards to be sure that they, you really do have a good match. But the, the question becomes, at what point can you sample? At what, what rights of privacy uh, expectations do you have? I mean, I've heard uh, tales of uh, people who have uh, been offered a Coke at an um, interrogation, for example, and they just took the can and, and swabbed that for a profile. And this is the kind of power that you have. 
cigarette butts, for example. Uh, all those those things are, are possibilities now that people don't realize how powerful these technologies are and, and how much data they can give us. But there actually is a, a crime base called CODIS, and it's been around for a while. It has thousands of profiles in it already. Well, like I said about the marketplace, that's the scary part because the, there's – I feel like there's such a – you're talking about an amazing wealth of data, right? Right. And there's just – it's like a law of supply and demand. Like da- data is the ultimate uh, currency, it seems, nowadays. So the marketplace somehow will <laughs> will force it out, will for- will force, you know, this to become like one of the next ubiquitous things. Maybe like in 50 years, you know, I- I- I'm afraid they're going to sh- Trojan horse this in on people. It will. This is the – it's coming fast, but it comes incrementally. Hmm. And it, this is the thing that uh, when George Church says, oh, we could clone a Neanderthal, not really. But things, new technologies are going to be on us so quickly, and and we're going to have to to cope with them and make decisions in the very near term. Uh, I'm telling you, it's going to be unbelievable. I mean, we we talk about revolution. This is an area where the the term revolution is very apt. The whole the DNA technology has turned the legal system upside down. People have have kind of not digested this yet, but um, if you think about it, you've heard of the Innocence Project? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And they, they I think, uh, right now say um, roughly 170 uh, people convicted felons, uh, some of whom were on death row, uh, have been <clears throat> exonerated. And I think world or U.S.-wide in total, not just the Innocence Project, but other uh, like projects, yeah. over 300 people convicted, 18 on death row, and these convictions were thrown out. So what's happened is the, the DNA evidence has really shown us that bedrock ideas of evidence, re- witness, reliability, all those things, they're all basically, we don't know what the heck's going on anymore. This is just the beginning, just the beginning of what these technologies are going to do. It's, it's, it's just really hard to imagine how much our lives are going to change. But if you can remember back 20 years ago as to what computer technology was like compared to what it's like today, you're going to be seeing kind of the same thing with biological technology and synthetic biology. And some of it has just started to come on the scene. And so I can't even tell you what the potentialities are other than to say that they'll be mind-boggling. Jesus. I knew you were intense, but I didn't know you were this intense. Well, it's stuff that's uh, <laughs> it's fun to think about. It, absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's like, why do you need to be scared about aliens being time travelers or uh, living inside the Earth when it's, we're, already, we're doing worse stuff? Worse stuff's already unfolding right around us. Well, that's what uh, Rojan and Lobo on Project Archivist are always saying to me. It's like, man, wait a minute. This stuff is real. Yeah, exactly. It is. It is. And so we, we've got a lot to do, and that's where um, I would say that uh, whether you like it or not, um, Paratopia, Project Archivist, but all of America, you're educators. And, uh, and one of the, the things that, that you're doing is helping people try to, to cope with data and teaching them really how to be scientists. And I can't think of anything more essential because you've got so many things coming down on you, or we do as a society. Uh, I don't even know which way to turn first. Yeah, especially with the Internet. We're getting bombarded. Well, uh, you know, it's a it's a great tool, uh, but um, 
boy, there are so many things that happened that, that we hadn't anticipated, uh, one of which was uh, a group of scientists showed how they were able to actually figure out uh, from DNA profile and uh, other evidence, uh, including um, those ancestry services, yeah. who the donors were. This was never supposed to happen. It was all supposed to be private, completely private. And this group just went through and they took, I think, 22 and they figured out who 18 of them were. Almost precisely 18. I mean, they had them nailed oh, by God. name. See, this I is mean, like worse than fingerprints because, I don't know. Fingerprints are nothing. Yeah. That's the, <laughs> fingerprint doesn't tell anybody about anything, you know, about the person <laughs> at all. Just, just, it's just like a, like a barcode. You yeah, know? yeah. This is a this is like a like an uncoded barcode. It's scary. This is um, well as the technology has evolved. Uh, what we the capabilities are astonishing, and uh, and what people can do. And then if you think about it, how inventive people are, there would be things that, that no one has really foreseen yet. And so the the guys taking and cracking the uh, identity codes of uh, people who had basically participated in studies. Uh, completely not foreseen, except the few people had. They had warned about it, but they didn't think anybody would do it. And now with uh, better computing facilities, boom, there it was. Now, how come it's illegal to clone the Neanderthal? Because it gets into too human a realm? Yes. Uh, in fact, um, the uh, if you define a Neanderthal as not human, which would be kind of a stretching it, uh, you might be able to get away with it. But um, even then, it would be uh, pretty difficult. It, Dr. Church is, is um, being a little um, facetious, I think, when he's saying you could do that or it won't be long. It's not an easy job. And one of the things is that we don't have a good consensus sequence for the Neanderthals. But the rules for reproductive cloning for humans are very clear. It's not allowed. And uh, President Obama specifically reiterated that recently, saying that it's um, – uh, immoral and uh, has no justification. I mean, he really just basically made it very clear what the the federal government's take on that was. So in the U.S., no, not allowed. Elsewhere, uh, probably the bulk of the countries that that do research like we do, not allowed. But other places, maybe not so clear. So on, on some island in the Pacific, maybe somebody would be able to get away with it. Reproductive human cloning. I'm sure it's happening somewhere. Well, um, I don't know necessarily actually though, because you need some pretty serious-minded uh, and uh, you know skilled scientists to pull that kind of thing off. So chances are, you know, you'd have to start from scratch. You know, it's kind of like building a nuclear weapon, right? I mean, you know, yeah. if North Korea wants to start cloning humans, they better find some people that can actually do that. It's uh, it, as you say, it's not something that is um, developed at this point. Uh, in principle. You know, I mean, one of the things that, that I tell students is that uh, the theory is the is sometimes the easiest thing. The actual know-how is a lot more difficult. So taking a nucleus out of a cell, slipping it into a, a, an enucleated ovum, and getting that thing to grow properly, that's not – I mean, it's easy to say. It's a little bit harder. It's a lot harder to do. So I think you're right that uh, the technical aspects of it probably preclude that. But I'll also tell you that we've had Dolly the sheep. I don't know if you remember her. Oh, yeah. And then did you hear about Cece for copycat? No. Is that a, is that a copy? Oh. Yeah, I've heard yeah. people cloning their – I've heard of people cloning their pets. Yes. And then um, I don't know if this might give people pause. When they clone them, 
as with uh, Copycat, she was a calico. Mm-hmm. They don't look anything like the original because the color patterns and everything on the calicos are random uh, events where genes are uh, basically shut off at certain times, and it just kind of happens stochastically. And so the idea that you're going to get a little Tim Bunnell, for example, uh, yeah, pretty much, sort of, kind of, we don't know because, you know, maybe in utero uh, your mom was eating Cheetos, and so that explains you. And so, you know, like... Right, we don't know all the factors. Yeah, yeah. We don't. So trying to get the exact thing, not so easy. Yeah, it sounds pretty impossible, yeah. Well, this was explored in The the Boys from Brazil, if you remember that movie with uh, Gregory Peck. Yeah. In the book. Yeah. Yeah, they wanted to reproduce Hitler. And they, they came up with, they tried to basically reproduce his environment, recognizing that genes were only part of it. And the, the thing about the genome code is that that's only potentials. The environment is, is what's going to finally bring those out, or not, or not. So with uh, Alzheimer's disease, uh, APOE4, um, we know that it increases your chances dramatically, but some people have the APOE4 gene and never get Alzheimer's disease. And so there are factors that still elude us. They're only potentials. The scary part in a way is you kind of wonder, they could twist it around is, this, is my fear, where they're going to be like, listen, now you have to give us this stuff so we can treat you to, so we can stop this. Do you know what I mean? Yes. I'm yes. afraid that's kind of the, the fear of it. Like, and, well, you know, and, the, and then, then they use that to do all kinds of other nefarious things. It's... Um, it's true that you could couch it in terms of we're only trying to help. Huh. We're trying to help you avoid things. And uh, one of the, the um, things that was done with um, the federal government is the Genetic Non-Discrimination Act um, was put together specifically so that people could have testing done with some kind of confidence that it wouldn't be used against them. I'm not clear, though on uh, what happens if, for example, you go to another service um, outside of your ordinary medical uh, doctor, for example, and try to find out, like, well, gosh, does my kid have an APOE4 gene so that I should not let him play uh, contact sports? Uh, how that information can or uh, be accessed or protected or not protected. I'm not clear on the rules. And so there, there could be a lot of um, things that people will find out the hard way, and you're right, there could be things that, that people realize there are opportunities and they start to tweak it. And uh, we're just kind of there. Well, that's the whole thing, too, about, you know, this. then you get into also the possibility of, like, eugenics and stuff. You know, because yeah. you talk about people who, you know, I've seen sort of the the glowing articles where it's like, someday you'll be able to choose your baby's eye color and stuff like that. You know, it's like, but why, you know, don't do that. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be, I don't think we should be doing that kind of thing. Right now, as a, as a society, I think that um, the law is on your side, that people have agreed that uh, reproductive cloning and changing germlines are things that we do not want to do. And I, I don't see that changing very soon. But going in and maybe uh, making changes that uh, could help us avoid heart disease or strengthen uh, failing cardiac muscles, for example, if we have the ability to... Um, to put genes or express genes in cells, uh, as I think we will shortly through uh, basically gene transfer mechanisms. Um, those are probably going to come and, uh, and could be important medical adjuncts. 
So, uh, it, yeah, I mean, there's so many th- ways this can go and so many things that, that could develop that we can't even foresee yet that um, we need to be very clear uh, as best we can uh, that um, people need to understand what's going on. And that, to me, this is the only hope. If we can't educate people, anything can happen. And the more eyeballs there are on it and the more people discussing it on the Internet and the more people who might get enraged when something really outrageous is done uh, could make all the difference. Yeah, that's true. You know, the uh, the court of public opinion, if you will. Yes. You know, because if all of a sudden people, you know, if, if, if for some odd reason people didn't seem to have a problem with human cloning, it would be already happening. Well, you know, that's an interesting thing that you brought up because one of the things that was in is in George Church's book is kind of what he sees as the progression of acceptance of technology. And he gives an example of basically the techniques to help people conceive babies that couldn't before the in vitro fertilization right. protocols. Yeah. And he said, you know, at first that was violently opposed and uh, and then uh, as the technology matured and developed and we could do it without too much trouble, uh, people began doing it, and then the, basically the objections declined, and so now it's, it's free-for-all. Not quite, okay? There's a, about 1.2 billion Catholics in the, in the world who probably have a few things to say about in vitro fertilization, and it's not necessarily all positive. And so, yeah, some of the objections have waned. Certainly laws and restrictions have been limited. But to say everybody's on board or there's no objection, oh, I don't think so. He needs to get out more. <laughs> I guess it's talked about now in a way. You know what I mean? It's, maybe it's not it is. Like shunned. It is. And, and I agree with him that as the technology has matured, uh, you can you can get people to have basically the embryos put in there that will implant without having to to destroy mass quantities of embryos. Uh, although I think it's still um, some people find the the whole process to be pretty objectionable. Uh, depends on when you feel that human life begins. Um, you know, I mean, those, those are matters of faith and, and not necessarily science. But, yeah, I mean, people people do uh, see it as, uh, on, on the average, as more acceptable, and the laws have been changed to reflect that. So, I mean, this is where we are. You, oddly enough, the word embryo got me thinking of uh, another piece that you have on, on your YouTube page, uh, which folks just Googled uh, Tyler Cochon to find his YouTube page or, uh, or punch in Rewinky, R-E-W-I-N-K-Y. That'll bring you up to his stuff. But what I thought was interesting that I'd never, I guess I should have just assumed it or presumed it and, and not expected the people in the abduction research field to mention it. But you say that if uh, if a woman was actually, you know, um, inseminated with a with a hybrid. You know, if they put a hybrid in her or something like that and then took it out, that you know how that's a prevalent story in the hybrid mythos. Yes. yes. Then it should be able to be proven medically. Yes. And it will it, leave traces. And then in turn, I get I mean I'm it, obviously I'm sure it, it, it must be tremendously traumatic for these women, whether it actually happened or not. So I can understand there'd be a difficulty maybe in rounding up the evidence, but it's been like 30 years, I think, since this whole kind of concept came out. So you'd think by now there would be a comprehensive study or work done 
to either flesh this out or show that we can't seem to find any actual physical evidence for this to have happened. I agree. Uh, the, uh, the, the ability to detect uh, the uh, cells from the, the baby, uh, it turns out that mom and baby exchange cells, and some of them live on in mom for decades after the pregnancy. Uh, under some circumstances, for example, obviously mom's going to be female, uh, but if you go through and track and find male cells in her, you know where they came from. And it's possible, it's feasible to do that, and in fact now in the last few years, uh, one could even do that from a simple blood draw. That uh, we can, now the sequencing technologies are powerful enough that people are actually proposing, looking for um, markers of mutations that you don't want to see in the baby by doing a blood draw instead of amniocentesis, which is a little more dangerous. And so uh, I mean, these things have, the technology has come along so fast and so furiously that, yeah, now there's, there's a possibility. And um, if you go back and, and think about the, the cells uh, hanging on, the embryonic cells hanging on in mom, that was unsuspected until about 20 years ago. And then the data just became overwhelming that, in fact, those cells had migrated. And uh, it may have consequences for things like arthritis and other diseases later on in mom's life. So it could be done. It's not necessarily easy, but as time goes on, the sequencing stuff could be quick and uh, relatively easy, depending on when you caught them. Uh, if they were in the middle of an event and had an implantation, it would be easy. And if they were a few days after, a week after or so, you could still find the traces of the DNA in circulation, in mom's circulation. There's lots of possibilities now that didn't exist 20 years ago. Um, I agree that it might be hard, uh, and this is one of the things, one of the challenges I pose to Dr. Jacobs is, okay, how much effort is it worth, Dave? We've got a, you know, a nefarious, I guess, uh, conspiracy against all of humanity. Might be worth a, a reasonable effort to see what's going on. I mean, you know, I'm just being silly now. No, but it's, if, you, if, you, if you believe it, if you, if you adamantly, if that's your bailiwick, then you should do what it takes to prove it. So no, that, that was my point. That's right. the extreme frustration that I had with these guys that, uh, well, I guess if I was him, I wouldn't talk to me either, to tell you the truth, because I'm just going to create problems. Hmm. But uh, yeah, I mean, this, this is what I'd say, is that there are things that could be done, and um, uh, situations that are out there that would help you understand, is this real or is this not? And if it's not, then what is it that people are experiencing? Uh, I personally believe that uh, part of the, of the problem, if you want to think about it, is hypnotic suggestion. However, uh, I think we can tease that out too. And uh, I, I'm not sure, you know, I mean, if you look at uh, the work of Whitley Strieber and now uh, Project Core. Uh, it's clear to me that uh, not everybody needs to be hypnotized, and there are lots of people that just remember their experiences. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so we, can, we can look at the, that group, which I think was uh, significantly uh, under-exploited by Hopkins and, and a whole series of people after that. So right. I, this, I, I, yeah. look, I, I think there are plenty of things that could be done, uh, plenty of approaches that uh, um, are now possible that weren't before, and... and uh, uh, we can get after this. You know, it's it's frustrating in a sense because you feel like the the paranormal community, whether it's UFOs or Bigfoot or whatever, they never really 
go to the, the skeptics and just be like, well, what do you need? You know, what can we do? What can we, what can we provide you that, that, you know, that will help? It seems Some it's always do. like, I guess, yeah. Some, Some do. do. Some do. Uh, not yeah. enough. Well, I, that's what I always say. And, uh, or not, um, um, I guess, uh, completely enough, if you want to think of it that way. It's not like, well, yeah, give me a couple of good ideas and you go do what you want, uh, anyway. But there are a few people who will, uh, uh, follow the leads. Um, there, I mean, if you think about, uh, there have been a couple of investigators who I think have, have had the right idea. And, uh, Bill Schalker, uh, mm-hmm. hair of the alien. Yep. Probably the first guy, at least as far as I can tell, the first guy to recognize the potential power of DNA evidence to answer the question. And what did he do? He went right after it. And he got a good case, and he did everything he could do. He got all the data, and he showed what he had. And so, my gosh, that's a great effort. That's the spirit. And so I think, you know, there, there's your example to emulate. Yeah. And, uh, too often the attitude is like, oh, we'll disprove this. When, <laughs> you know, when it really, <laughs> when it really should be like, hey, here's something interesting. What do you think of this? You know, is there, should I, what can I go back and get more of? What do I need? You know what I mean? Yeah. Cooperation. Yeah. What's so hard about that? Well, it's become quite an issue. And uh, I think, you know, like we're talking about camps and how I think what you've termed it is how can I fortify the the interactions between those. And, and I'd say it's going to have to come one bit at a time. But, um, you know, Guy Edwards and, and other people, uh, you, uh, Sharon Hill, uh, people who are willing to have a discussion and, uh, and give and take. And uh, I think when when folks get the idea that that works, they'll follow along. And, and I can tell you honestly, uh, what I saw after your interview with uh, Sharon Hill was a lot of people saw the value because they immediately began to to include her. And that was something that she had mentioned, like, well, you know, I never get invited to these things. And so I'm hoping that you know maybe maybe you broke that barrier. It kind of looks like there it, it might have started. I hope it continues. Yeah, I'm seeing her a lot more now that uh, she's been on the show, but I don't want to pat myself too much on the back for that. Well, I'll I'll do it. That was good. <laughs> it, it was, and that's why I sent you the email. And uh, w- what people don't know is that we hadn't really talked to each other directly, uh, even though kind of indirectly, because I heard, just like you say, you hear about this or that, and I, w- I would always hear from Vaney about things that you said. Yeah, we have a lot of good mutual friends. Yeah, and so uh, what what I did is uh, when I listened to that episode, of course, I was very curious to hear it, and I thought, this was great. And so when I think people do things well, you should tell them. No, thank that, you. That's why I sent the the email. But, uh, yeah, I think, you know, it would be great if you'd have her back on and find out, hey, how did, how did it really break for you? Did anything happen? Did other people get in touch? Because I know that they have. And then did that mean that you finally got invited to another, like, you know, uh, UFO Congress uh, 2014, something like that. And that would be wonderful. I think it would be great if there was more skeptics of these events, but, you know, it, in, a, in a lot of ways, a lot of these things are driven by star power, and they, in the paranormal field, uh, they have, like, anti-star power. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. <laughs> They're full of dark energy. <laughs> yeah. It's not for everybody. <laughs> you know, so... 
you'll have to choose wisely. But I'm telling you, it's no different in science. We, our group just ended a collaboration a few months ago with a guy, world authority in the area that we needed, but he just wasn't very workable and he was kind of unpleasant. And, and he really gave our, our group leader a bad time. And so I said, Alex, you know what? It's time for us to move on. And, and so, you know, you go on to the next person. Yeah. And that this same as it is in, in every place else in life, that some work and some don't. I also saw a clip that you made called Alien Hybrids Do the Math, which I thought was interesting because it just says pretty much that a hybrid invasion isn't, um, I guess, statistically feasible. Is that, is that the, the right way to put it? Yeah, yeah, it would be rather difficult that uh, the numbers don't favor the aliens taking over in such a way. And the, and the reason is, is uh, with my simple model, uh, that the hybrids really can't reproduce uh, because they'll basically be swamped out by human genes. And so as a, a reproductive strategy, this seems pretty weak. And so actually, if you think about um, strategies, um, the uh, Siskin idea of um, people coming in and being modified to search for gold, the Anunnaki controlling uh, beings or whatnot to search for gold, yeah. uh, is actually a more tenable idea uh, in, in terms of uh, practicality, that you'd have a, a cadre of people to work for you. But, uh, no, the idea of taking over by that mechanism, I think, is uh, pretty intrinsically weak. And uh, this is what I'd say is when you have um, a lot of people looking at things uh, and commenting, one of the powerful things with the Internet now is the ability for people to get on sites and comment, and hopefully those comments will be posted and survive, is that these ideas can be kind of found out. And uh, in reality, it, that's what we do in science is peer review. And, and so if I want to publish a paper, uh, I have to send it in to a journal, and it has to be reviewed by people anonymous to me uh, who are considered knowledgeable in the field, and, uh, and they will look at it and see if they can detect any errors. And, and that can be really important for, for figuring out, like, oh, my God, yeah, this isn't going to work. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's mathematically impossible. And, and trust me. All of us, the most brilliant scientists among us, I'm sure, would admit that we've all had ideas that have just been pretty damn bad, and, and they get shot down, and that's how it should go. I'm still just stuck on the uh, the difficulties facing the UFO field, you know, that we've started this conversation on, and how to get to the bottom of it, how to how to really uh, because it hap it's kind of like I've heard the analogy that it's like weather, you know, where it's hard to really it's not it's the old thing about how it's not repeatable. So how what you know what is the best way to go about getting a handle on something that's not repeatable? Yeah, I think uh, um, ephemeral phenomena are, are obviously difficult. I mean, do we have previous examples of ephemeral phenomena we've figured out, and maybe what's the template for that? Absolutely, and one of those is um, uh, the the idea of meteors, rocks falling from the sky, how mm -hmm. preposterous two hundred years ago. And then suddenly what people began to do is to witness the falls and bring in rocks that were like nothing else that was in the area and people hadn't seen before. And slowly, bit by bit, and it was not, you know, one rock, you know, and that, oh, yeah, okay, uh, National Academy now accepts. But bit by bit, you kind of whittle away at it. And I, I think I was actually talking on, on Jeff's show where um, one of the best, 
tools you can have for some of these phenomena is a sharp eye and a good notebook, and that you just start recording. Okay, I saw on this night a diary, and then you go back and review those, and patterns sometimes kind of fall out. Right. This is kind of what I was saying about the Nate Silver idea. You know, yeah. if we have a yeah. huge database of the UFO sightings, put them into this. You know, st- statistic. Have a st- we need maybe a statistician needs to look at this stuff. Well, I'll tell you what, a statistician and a whole bunch of other people besides. Absolutely, yeah. And you just, uh, th- this is the sort of crowdsourcing. But, yeah, I mean, the, the, if you, you look at the data, uh, the next thing that will happen, Tim, will be hypotheses. Hey, you know what? This only happens on Tuesdays in oh. Ohio. And then you can be there. Okay? You, can, you can get ready. Or if you have, we talked about a hot spot before. But those patterns will, will, or maybe data, will lead you to testable hypotheses, and you can slowly winnow it down. But I think that it's going to be a very long process, and uh, it may be, quite honestly, that science is not up to answering this in a quick way, or perhaps even some of it not at all. And we just, we try. We get as far as we can. And, uh, you know, it's a tool. Science is a tool, and so sometimes it maybe can help us, sometimes it can't. Well, see, I find that refreshing that you say that because I I did follow some of the fallout from the Sharon Hill uh, appearance, and one of the sort of arguments that came up between commenters on some of these posts was that, and I guess I'm I'm kind of on the on the on the pro paranormal side where they say you know science doesn't have a good science hasn't done a good job of explaining these things, and then you know on the skeptic side they say. Yes, they have. You're just not listening. <laughs> but I, and I, like as I said to Sharon on the show, maybe we're all just wrong. Well, clearly, we're all wrong because we're still fighting about it. So, I mean, part of it is, it feels to me like, how can science not have like explained all this by now? Yeah, I. I it shouldn't persist that. if 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 the. You know, if the explanations are so airtight, if they're so positive, then it shouldn't be, you know, it should be more like the flat earth. You know, no one's jumping on flat earth anymore. This is, I think this is part of the problem they're hitting on is, is that we, uh, individually are polarized and we're arguing from, uh, positions of certainty that actually are not warranted. And uh, that there are times that people need to to just work backwards and say, okay, explain to me what you saw, and and let's talk about it, or let's go through this, or let's look at the evidence. Uh, and I, I look at ghost hunters or ghost hunting as a place that is absolutely rife for people to come in and confirm or reject that certain techniques like EVPs have any kind of basis in actual fact, and I, I think it can be done. And then we can, if that works, great. And if not, uh, you know, we can stop worrying about it. But, you know, I mean, how cool would it be if it actually would work? The, wow. The whole EVP thing? In general. Yeah, I, I'm not a great subscriber to that. I don't I don't get it. But um, I think that there's things that you can do. Uh, there are techniques that, that I think would, would help us uh, believe if this is real or not real, uh, meaningful or not meaningful. Um, Jeff Ritzman was talking about going to Gettysburg, and I said, hey, you know what? There are places right by where I live where uh, it's clear that the Anasazi or Hohokam slaughtered each other a thousand years ago. I wonder if there's EVPs there and if it's in some language that I don't comprehend. 
you know. And, yeah, that's true. I didn't think of that. Uh, it's just, you know, those things that, that you go through and say, well, if this is true, then this would follow. And, you know, and then you can come back and if you want to evade that, you could say, well, yeah, gee, Tyler, that's a good idea. But, you know, a thousand years, that's too long. But 150 years of Gettysburg, well, that, that works. Well, that's that's crap. Right. That's pleading right. special conditions. Moving the goalposts. Exactly. People would call it moving the goalposts, and uh, uh, those are the things that we we have to watch out for. Or if they happen, as we have this conversation, let's say on your web page, you know, in the think tank, uh, somebody could call and say, "No, no, come on, that's special pleading. You can't do that," and then have that conversation. That's that's where I see that that we're failing. We're not really playing fair with each other. And uh, it may be that you'll have to find just the right people to start that, but just as you did with bringing skeptics into your show and, and speaking, um, a good example can be emulated very quickly and it can be very powerful. Right, exactly. I mean, I'm not afraid to, to talk to skeptics, like I said, because I'm not afraid to say that I'm wrong. And I yeah. think that, you know, well, I don't, I mean, I don't really know what I even believe anymore. So, <laughs> so I don't even know what I'd be wrong about. You know, my real thing is that I think there's something to these mysteries and I'd like to figure out what that, what that is. Yes. Why do people have these experiences? What is it? What is the basis of this? And, uh, I'll just come out there and, and tell you that I, going through some uh, data with Project Core, certain things occurred to me. Certain things kind of fall out of the data as you look at them. And um, without revealing too much at, at this point, uh, some of them alarmed me. And the reason is because I, I thought that, well, a person could take this and twist it and turn uh, data into a pejorative to, to work against the people that have the experiences. And when I talked to Jeremy Vaney about that, he said, oh, yeah, I don't care, Tyler. I'd wear it as a badge of honor. Right, because if you can, that's that goes back to you got to shut down the non-starters. So yeah. if, it's, if it if it you know, I just yeah see the but that's yeah. that's the spirit exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm, the, the frustration I have is for is, is with the inability to get everybody on board this perspective. <laughs> it's like, don't you really want to figure this out, or you just want to? I think too that there's a problem with just the. Subliminal desire to perpetuate the mystery on the part of the the, the paranormal community, in a sense. Well, I, I mean, how I honest are they that. really? To how how many of them really want to figure this out? Um, and particularly if uh, the the money train depends on it. Hmm. Um, yeah, uh, I, I can I can see that. Um, and I think there's also a feeling that that some people don't like the idea of uh, science coming in and dissecting it and telling you. Uh, well, no, it's electrical discharge here, the temporal lobe, and obviously this is this is just silly. Um, I don't think that's going to happen, first of all. But uh, I can I can understand the the reticence. So, and I understand that far more than I do the person on the other side who doesn't want to have the conversation. What do they have to lose? Who's, who's this? The skeptic or the scientist? Yeah, the oh. skeptic who who doesn't want to get in and engage and and go back and forth. What? Well, you kind you have a lot less at stake than that the person who's the experiencer. You know, I mean, it's just it it's silly. It's just silly. So, in in my view, okay, I mean, I have to let other people explain uh, their their particular positions, and perhaps somebody will to you, and uh, you can 
relay that to me. What do you mean is silly, though? The Just a, an ardent, true believer kind of thing? Well, the idea that uh, if we go ahead and uh, reduce down a phenomenon to, okay, here's here's what happens inside the brain. Now, let's say in okay, a Okay, yeah, that's what you're saying, yeah. I could put you in a PET scan and go, yeah, see, you get this emanation here in the temporal lobe. It travels through the white matter back to the occipital. You get an image. It comes back. You right. misinterpret that. See, that's what it is. Like the God helmet thing. Yeah, yeah. And I'd say, well, you know what? You got that one at that moment. Uh, and, and, yeah, it might be indicative that if you induce certain things in the brain, or the person does willfully, uh, that you get images and experiences. So be it. And it's going to be really hard to explain whether that has any significance. Uh, in fact, I'd say it has whatever significance that person attaches to it. I know that will probably draw, drive Jeremy Bainey nuts. <laughs> but, um, you know, I mean, it, it's part of it is that this is this is who we are as people, as a species. And, you know, I mean, we know that people are wired differently and they respond differently. And so we may just be finding out that there are people who are a lot more sensitive to things in the environment. And then we're trying to reduce it down. Uh, we may have missed something. So sometimes the reductionist approach doesn't tell us everything we need to know. So I, I look at this as a long process and a lot of back and forth and thinking and maybe arguing. And uh, one that you have to approach like Jeremy Vaney does is without fear. This is what it means. Okay, that's who I am. Whatever. Who are you? I mean, that, that would be his <laughs> response. I know who I am. Who are you? Right. Well, that's the thing. I've said this on the show before. It doesn't really – if it all generates from the mind – that doesn't make it any less fantastic. That's a pretty no. amazing thing that you can do with your mind. And and just for the, you know, for the people who desperately cling to aliens, even if it's some product of the mind, that doesn't mean that aliens can't be coming here. So, I mean, it, it doesn't actually negate the possibility of aliens. It just explains part of what we're dealing with. I think you're absolutely right. And I would say, you know, think back to the Bigfoot example, that we may maybe point out that there are weaknesses in a certain paper. That does not negate the phenomenon as a whole. Exactly. What is it that people see? And I'm having, when I came into this, Tim, I had absolutely no interest in alien abduction, just drawn into it by accident. And now I find it very fascinating, and I really want to know, what is it that people are experiencing, and and how does this happen, and when, and why, and you know what in heck um, goes on here? Because I, I'm I'm positive that they have the experiences, and uh, and I believe them, and so I just wanted to uh, see what we can tease out of it, if anything, and then we could come back to the point and say, you know what, we're not advanced to the level where we can really get much further than this. Great, and we've gotten somewhere. Right. So you're saying, yeah. Well, you don't really ever hear that, I guess, from with regards to with regards to the paranormal. I feel like there's also the concern that they're this on the skeptic side. You don't really ever hear them sort of come up to the edge like that. Do you know what I mean? Where they're like, "All right, I'm stumped." I'm sure there's probably some that do, but I feel like if you presented them with some case, they'd eventually come up with some prosaic. They would just keep sort. They would keep changing the goalposts in a sense, you know, because there are really good cases out there. I don't understand. Again, it goes back to like, I can understand why the skeptics throw out stuff that's crap, 
But what I don't understand is there are good stuff. So let's let's take the good stuff and all work together maybe on looking at that. You know, like yeah. the, the RB47 case or some of these famous cases that are really, really good. Like that one over Iran or something, you know. I guess part of it, too, is I've, I've, I'm going to shoot my own self in the foot, but I've sort of endorsed this idea of if we're going to get back to basics, we almost have to throw out a little bit of the baby with the bathwater because – the research is old now, and it's we really maybe can't get as much out of it as you would like, as far as these you know signature cases go. Yeah, I guess. Um, so we kind of have to wait around for the next signature case and actually do a better job of investigating it. Yeah, and that's uh, the Mufon Star team and others. Uh, you know, more power to them. Uh, it, it's only literally only going to take one if if there is in fact um, if the ETH is real. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the classic thing, well, they'll land on the White House lawn and then we'll go from there. But, uh, yeah, if you, if you just keep slogging at it, um, and I think that's a valid approach as long as people continue to have experiences, and they clearly do. They clearly see things, and uh, some we can explain and some we can't. And that's that's what we've got to concentrate on is the ones that we, we need to work on. So I think to do otherwise is contrary to the spirit of science. Just to, to put it out there, I mean, it's not, I wouldn't say it's unethical, but it's not the way you were trained to be as a scientist. And that, that method is to, you know, hey, wait a minute, what is this? And tell me again. And there's nothing wrong with asking questions. There's nothing wrong with being uh, critical. But um, there is something wrong with being uh, negative or refractory to new information. That's fatal. Not going to get us anywhere. Right. Well, that's, you know... That's, that's I guess, the problem that the paranormalists see is happening with science, that they just outright dismiss this stuff. But, I, like, I, like having talked to you and thought about it and having talked to Sharon and stuff, and like I said earlier, the whole thing about not, not producing the right data is, I think, a critical problem, you know, or not producing yeah. quality data. We don't, we don't have, I guess what you'd call quality data, because we don't have the smoking pistol hmm. in hand at this point. Um, that could be that, you know, we just need to, um, just as you say, think about it. What could this be? Uh, what are the possibilities? Uh, I can, I can tell you that, that, uh, I, in the, walking out in the deserts in, in Arizona and looking around, I've seen the most remarkable mirages and visions. In fact, some of them are on my website. I finally got a way to, to record some. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, they're just things that they're not real. And, and how did this happen? And, and, and eventually we can, we can figure out what went on. I mean, mountains that, uh, you know, I've, it, as you drive down uh, the highway, you, you can see mountains appear and disappear and leap up into the sky off in the distance. It's a mirage. And, and I, I think we have a good physical basis for it. But boy, the first time you see them, they really throw you. And you, you have that, I know what I saw a moment. And you can, then if somebody came in and said, well, you know what? You were tripping, man. You, know, you had too many, too many mushrooms. You're on your vision quest and you got all dehydrated and you, you just had some kind of uh, TIA out there. And so you don't know what you're talking about. No, I saw it. And more to the point, I photographed it. Okay. But now I'm like every other UFO investigator. I've got the photograph and what does it tell me? Well, this one we can interpret. We kind of have some science, and so people would say, oh, yeah, that's a mirage. Okay, I get that. Mm. It's a superior image mirage. 
and we can and I'm hoping that if we get enough eyeballs on the problems and enough real interaction that maybe we'll crack a few of these and uh and say, Okay, yeah, we know what that one is now, let's move on to the next one or oh, this is really interesting. At the end of the day, no matter how dire it looks, I still kinda hope it's aliens. Well I mean I'll be honest. Here. It was. What's that? It should be fun if it was, wouldn't yeah. it? I think that's really what drives a lot of it too. You know, you, it's you hope that the, the for the fantastical. At least I do. Well, let me tell you, that's true of the scientists too. And and I think on your website right now, isn't Bruce Pretty arguing about the SETI project in defense of SETI or a silly effort to investigate? I think yeah. is his title. Yeah, that's a classic scientific program. And guess what drives it? The hope that somebody's out there. And I mean, this, these are mainstream scientists, respectable people, okay? And they're thinking along these lines that out there are other civilizations who more to the point would be interested in trying to find out if there's anyone else out there. And what a fantastic thing it would be. You know, and every, every day, um, actually I wrote an article in the MUFON UFO Journal uh, a few years ago about uh, a more crowded universe. And, um, the the idea is that what we found is as we've found uh looked out into the, the near solar environment there are more small red stars around us than we realized and there may be more jumping off points but also more points for other civilizations to possibly exist or have found refuge and and maybe one of them will signal us or maybe send a device i think so, you're the, uh, one of a only handful of people who's written for both the mufon journal and SciScop. <laughs> Well, okay. I haven't thought of that before. Yeah, you uh, should find out. I bet you might be. You might be the only one. You might be the only <laughs> the only person out there. Well, if we put in uh, the uh, Journal of Biological Chemistry, we probably have a trifecta then for sure with uh, Alzheimer's work. But um, yeah, I mean, this is these are things that that I find personally fascinating, and I can tell you that so do mainstream scientists, and, and we may disagree about okay whether there's any uh, compelling evidence. Uh, but man, you know, I, I'm, if somebody calls me and they say, hey, there's a UFO out here, I'm out to look for it. And, uh, you know, that's the way I'm gonna be until I can't get up in the, in the night and run around anymore. Until, you know, until it happens or it doesn't happen. One or the other. Well, we need more guys like you, uh, who are at least willing to give this a fair shake. I think there's, there's more out there than you may realize and one of the, the problems is that... They don't want to get mixed up in the circus. They don't want to get mixed up in the in the circus. It's a very strange environment for a scientist, and I, you probably don't think about this at all. But uh, I come from a <laughs> here you go. I'm the alien. I come from a world <laughs> where the rules are very different. Okay, and uh, and how we interact with each other is quite different than what I would see at the UFO Congress. And so when, when I go into the vendors area um, at the Alzheimer's meeting, what I will see will be the people who sell the, the Alzheimer's drugs and uh, devices and things to use in the lab. But I can tell you I will not find somebody searching for implants or uh, trying to – I don't even know what some of these people were talking about, okay, in, in terms of, of their products. Uh, very, very strange – uh, universe there at the uh, UFO Congress, and that is off-putting, frightening. 
to people. And they, they come in and say, wow, this is pretty crazy. And that's it. They're gone. Right. Okay. You don't work with them. You find others and say, no, you need to focus on the talks and uh, on the investigators and find out what's going on. And um, Right. You really have to separate the wheat from the chaff in this field. There's a lot of chaff. Well, you're very kind. Yeah. I, I had a lot of other terms. For, uh, <laughs> well, it, I guess it's like sifting for gold. That might be... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You, know, you really got to figure out. The problem with this whole thing is like, you know, in science, things get disproven and maybe it's a handful, of, maybe, I, I, I don't know, maybe you can correct me on this, but maybe, I presume maybe a handful of people who, who it's their pet thing kind of still hang on, but for the most part, science moves on. But, you know, with like, for example, this Ketchum thing, I have a feeling this may go on into perpetuity. I mean, I, I call her the honey boo-boo of the paranormal. She's, this is going to last for a long time. I feel like we're going to be talking about her, you know, in 2020 perhaps, if it keeps – because there are going to be people that will just champion stuff no matter how many times it's been disproven, no matter how many times a, a researcher has been discredited, people are still going to champion their stuff, you know, for God knows why. I mean, I don't even yeah. want to get into the mind of these people. No, it could be in that um, things have a, a very long life on the Internet. Exactly. But, uh, yeah, we do uh, uh, sometimes uh, after long arguments, and they can be very long arguments, uh, some matters are largely settled but not completely. Uh, like does HIV virus cause uh, AIDS? Uh, most, I think, scientists would say, yeah, the evidence is quite compelling, but there are a few holdouts. And, uh, I mean, it's climate change is another great example. Right, yeah. Where the, probably the majority consensus opinion is that uh, carbon dioxide increasing in the atmosphere through human intervention is influencing the climate. That may be a problem for us. Uh, but there are people that, that vehemently disagree. But yeah, the the Ketchum thing, or or not to to pick on her, but right, that um, was just an example. I mean, there's, well, yeah. I, I wanted to use one that is sort of the flavor of the month. That'll yeah, you and know, so yeah, yeah, they can they can hang on, and you're right, people can find in there uh, things that they think are correct and champion them, um, and it, it can be difficult because you can't always uh, find a way to be sure that they get both sides of the story. And the other thing that we really, just as people, have to guard against is that we we tend to, to find what we are compatible with and believe and then accept it and don't go any further. And this can lead you to errors in, in so many ways, whether it's political or otherwise. And so one of the things that I hope that you guys can train people to do is, is like Bruce with his article, is, uh, now wait a minute, now think about this and put those things up so there might be an alternative. And that's that's what I would say is that I know that there are going to be young people who are seeking, who have had experiences and and are, are confused by them, perhaps worried about them, uh, but trying to find more information. So I'm hoping that some of the stuff I put out there gets to them. That's all you can do. That's all you can do. I mean, the rest of it, yeah. Well, you can believe what you want to believe or find what you want to find. Yeah. I mean, I don't fault people for believing crazy stuff. And Lord knows, we've had people on the show who believe in crazy stuff. And uh, as much as I sort of critique the idea of speculative ufology, there's definitely a place for it. Yeah. But I think we need to sort of 
bear in mind, we, we can't lose focus on the ultimate quest, which is to get to the bottom of what's going on on all these things. And that's an easy thing to have happen, and particularly when when turf is involved or egos or whatever. I mean, it's, people are people, and it's the same in mainstream science, too. Uh, if you remember Muhammad Ali, uh, one of his things was when he was boxing as a, as a businessman late in his career, he would win his fights by points. And people were kind of complaining, and, and he came out and said, yeah, but you got to whoop the champ. If you want to be the champ, you got to whoop me. You really got to make it clear, you know, that I couldn't couldn't compete with you. And the same is true with uh, scientific ideas, is that there's a great deal of inertia when it comes to overthrowing them. And it can take a long time, and a lot of times it means that the old guard has to leave. But eventually it'll happen. Eventually the data will win out, even though we don't want to see it. And, uh, you know, I was telling um, Jeremy and uh, Jeff Ritzman that uh, one of the things that happened with me going through the paranormal stuff from years ago through Paratopia and on out is that it actually taught me a little bit, I think, uh, a better way of viewing data. And it's probably going to sound strange, but it's absolutely true, is that I, I am better now than I was when I first came into this that, uh, at recognizing assumptions and throwing them off and say, no, let's go where the data takes us, not uh, using the shorthand. Do you know Alfred Lemberg? Yes. He, Alfred caught me doing something a few years ago, or he just kind of revealed kind of offhand something he commented, and I recognized, like, oh, crap, I'm doing that, a shorthand. Uh, and, it, and we all fall into those patterns, you know, like this guy's a jerk, that guy's okay, uh, you know, on some trivial kind of quick decision basis. And I was quickly categorizing as to uh, good and worthless. And, and it, he kind of caught me in a, you know, a, a logical quandary. I can't remember what it was now, uh, but, you know, I really owe him one for that. And I greatly appreciate that. And, and Jeff Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney also very patiently educated me about things and show me, but no, Tyler, look at it, flip it this way. And so I, I'm a lot better now at looking at it from the opposite view. And, and uh, it's actually kind of, it came up in some stuff we were doing with Alzheimer's disease where I, I sat there and said, you know what, let's look at it this way. And I swear to God, believe me, don't believe me or whatever, it came from just messing around with this paranormal stuff. So... God love him. I owe Jeff and Jeremy and Alfred Lemberg something. A beer. I don't know. Something. <laughs> Jeremy doesn't drink. Believe me. I've tried. Well, we can <laughs> probably correct that eventually. That's, I, that's what I keep saying. No <laughs> break. No break. So now we're, this is sort of like the wrap up. Uh, we'll sort of, uh, ease into the end here now. But, um, now you've kind of, you, you've sort of been, percolating, let's say, on the scene and, and getting more well-known and doing more shows and, and you know, your name's getting out there more and more and, and, you know, let's just, regardless of the people who won't listen, because, you know, if they won't listen, then that's fine. There's yeah. nothing we can do yeah. without those people, so they can they can do whatever they want. Um, I was going to say something more crass, but we'll just say they can do whatever they want. <laughs> <laughs> um What's, you know, where do you see your work going from here? You know, because I, I want, I want more from you. I mean, you got like maybe a blog or, you know, if we, we're working on a blog set up at Banal of America, you know, you come over here and write for us or, 
you know, what or or a book or something, you know, what what kind of stuff are you are you thinking about maybe doing down the line? Because uh, oh. we you need more of a presence in this field, man. Well, a blog might be kind of fun. Uh, the uh, to be really honest, um, the thing that that I really want to finish right now uh, is the project core with Jeff and Jeremy. Now, this, this is really uh, Jeff's and, and Jeremy's idea, and I'm just helping them out. But I, I would like to go ahead and uh, look at that data, compare it to things like Whitley Strieber and the things that um, uh, Denise Stoner and uh, Kathleen Martin put out. And, and God bless them, they put it out there for everybody to see their survey. Right, yeah, so they've I done some good work that. too, yeah. Yeah, and, and that was nice because one of the criticisms I've had uh, is, well, yeah, you can have it if you buy it. You know, that, that's how I would look at the, the field, and they, they didn't play that game. And so I, I'm very grateful for that. Uh, but that's, that's what I would like to do right now is uh, just see what we can tease out of Project Core. Uh, my uh, friend at school, Dr. Kim Cooper, has a student who's actually reducing some of the data, and we've got quite a few stories uh, into uh, a computer-friendly uh, Excel kind of format, and then I've gone through and, and found some things I think are, are kind of interesting. But uh, but apart from that, I, I don't have any any plans. I mean, I'm I'm fine just uh, coming on and podcasts or whatever. I don't need to uh, need anything beyond that. And I, I'm in a really great position because I have a job that pays me a living wage. So this can be the stuff I just love to do and, and mess around with it. I think that helps because I'm kind of in the same position, you know, where it's like if you, if you can kind of really keep this at arm's length, it is, I think, a healthier perspective on the whole thing. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because yeah. I, I I sort of dabbled with the possibility of, of uh, you know, making, be, making uh, I guess, becoming a paranormalist as a career. But then I remembered I went to college. No, I'm... <laughs> 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 but uh but it's really you know I think that you get you, if you're I've always said you know I, I try to be sort of in the paranormal but not necessarily of the paranormal sure I know exactly what you're doing yeah because if if you can get that separation uh I think you I think you have a much better way of looking at all this because otherwise you know if you have to sing for your supper in this field then it skews the whole operation. Yes. Yes. And it gives you a great deal of, I guess, powerful latitude. You know, you have a perspective that maybe others don't and needs that don't drive you in certain directions. This is where you can go where the data lets you go and, and basically say, that doesn't work for me or that, that's, I'm sorry, that's wrong. And be able to say it just in an instant. So, yeah. Nope. Not working. All right. So, folks, you just stay tuned. Keep 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 the Google alert on Tyler Kochong because they'll be popping up in, <laughs> in various places. And uh, well, you know the the greatest tool in the universe, Twitter. You really like the Twitter? I, I can't get into it. See how bad well, I am? I call it the Twitter. I uh, <laughs> Twitter. Yeah. I uh, what I've done is I, I've follow people that are interesting and uh it's really a, a chance to uh to interact with uh people uh if they are kind enough to to put out um i guess advanced notice of what they're doing or their articles or whatnot and you can shoot them right then and there if you want to what do you mean uh, shoot they, them? 
If they have something stupid. Oh, that's what you say, huh? You can come back and say, yeah, but you forgot about this. And boop, there it is. And so it's it's uh, a little more uh, public than sending an email that, that they just delete. Yeah. And uh, for the most part, I think that, as with anything else, you, should, you need to be uh, basically uh, fundamentally positive. But you can you can give them some gas and uh, and get your point across to people that might not otherwise want to talk to you very much. Uh, but the other thing is that you can also have a pulse for what's going on. So I can pop into Twitter and see what the issues are right away, and uh, you know what's kind of hitting right now. That, that's how I got onto the Bigfoot thing. And I uh, started to, to uh, track that. And that's, that's actually where I first uh, saw um, Sharon Hill, uh, Doubtful News, and I, I just followed her. Yeah, she's uh, done some great work on that, that story. Yeah. And, I mean, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Uh, that, um, uh, and, and other people had, had contributed. Uh, and, and together, to me, that shows what the field can do, that, that the, the field, that disparate people came together. Uh, Sharon Hill from the skeptical side, the Randy Foundation, and then some of the other uh, bloggers, uh, Bigfoot people, came together and they exposed the problems. Very short order, but very effectively. And I mean, uh, this this is uh, the way it should work. I agree, though. Yeah, that's a, it's a good sign the way that whole thing you know, unfolded. That. There was sort of a collective uh, cooperation, you know, and I, I and joked, it was, yeah. And it, but the other thing is that it wasn't just the skeptics screaming foul. The Bigfoot re- researchers got in there and said, "Yeah, you know what? This doesn't work." Yeah, and they were retweeting stuff, you know, the comments, criticisms, or whatever. Uh, these are the Bigfoot guys, the the ones that you would think would be, you know, closing ranks. No, they wanted the quality data. Well, good for them. Right. Well, that's, I guess, how I can, beyond separating the wheat from the chaff, I guess that's how you can separate the, uh, you know, the people who are really looking to get to the bottom of this and the people who are rather just propagate the mythos. Or you could say, well, they're propagating uh, whatever they propagate, but they went ahead and um, made sure that everybody that followed them knew what was going on here. You know, I'm not saying that every site that I, I've followed there or looked at is necessarily, uh, you know, the, the uh, be-all and end-all. Of, um, of uh, I guess, scientific uh, integrity. Um, they are what they are, but they did a great job here. And uh, and so I say, yeah, that's that's pretty cool. That's uh, you know more power to you. Let's hope it continues. I'm hoping it will. I think it will because I think people see uh, um, good possibilities here, and, and some of them. I mean, I'm sure a lot of them are probably unhappy with the with the, that it didn't work out. No, the idea that skeptics would collude with <laughs> yes, researchers the conspiracy, yes. and, and come together and, you know, destroy a, a great myth. And it, it was a beautiful myth. I, I mean, it was a great example of, of how you can solve these problems and come up with uh, explanations that work so well until you start to examine them. So, yeah, that's what it's – this is why you need uh, peer review. Now, it's not going to solve everything. But it's certainly a good start. In a way, it was kind of like a quasi version of peer review. It was. It is. And, and it is or like a democratized fact, sort of non-scientific, well, like, scientific in a way. I guess non-institutionalized uh, scientific peer review. That's what I would say. Uh, an informal but very scientific, at its heart, process. 
Yeah. And uh, and people, uh, if you you come in and you look at some of the postings on Doubtful News, uh, what you'll see is that many of the commenters were very sage. And uh, I look at Guy Edwards' uh, site, and I also see there are a lot of people in there that had uh, uh, really important insights to offer. That's peer review, pure and simple. It's, it's exactly, I mean, it's just, it's so great because this whole system, there's no way to do it, and we found a way to do it. How about that? There you go, folks. The future looks bright, perhaps. Sort of. Yeah. <laughs> we'll find a way to mess it up, Tim. Yeah, but. give it time. Give it time. <laughs> and on that note, you've given us uh, a tremendous amount of time. I think you managed to break Paul Kimball's record here for uh, longest appearance this season. So cool. Yeah, and I, I, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I've said numerous times this this year. Uh, you know, I, I can't believe we've gone two hours. We've gone so long, but I mean, we've gone over three hours here, and I. I'm stunned because I feel like if it wasn't 2.17 in the morning in Boston <laughs> and if you probably, you know, if you didn't have a life, I would uh, I think we'd both be on the phone, you know, for another two or three hours. So I figure uh, it's only a matter of time before that happens in the future. Okay. And on that note, I gotta, like I said, uh, I, I love this conversation. I, I'm going to keep an eye out on your stuff and we're going to be emailing back and forth all the time and... You know, are you not on the Facebook though? I know, oh, no, yeah. I never. I I don't have anything to post there, and I've just never been interested in being on it. Um, the only thing that would make me do that is uh, like Rogan and and uh, Archivist people have stuff there, and Jeremy does. Uh, so no, I don't see that. But maybe I should just get a an account and just have my name on it. I think it. Yeah, I think it might be a good idea. But you know, who knows? I think you'd get a whole new insight into this. You know. Because you don't really, you don't have a web hub, so yeah, you don't get the opportunity to be <laughs> harassed or harangued. Yeah, yeah. So it's probably a double-edged sword. So you know, you you, you might be in, in in the exact right position because there've certainly been times when I think to myself, if I had just sort of hung back on the periphery, <laughs> <laughs> I might have well, I might be happier uh, with the field or something like that. So you know, I don't know. I think you know, you got a good job. Or a good gig here going uh, oh, got a nice hub. It, yeah. yeah, and you got some uh, interesting people and and they're not all saying the same things. You know, there's a diversity there. And uh, that's key. So yeah, if you can tolerate that kind of ambiguity, I think, you know, you're gonna last and do well. And uh, I think the data suggests that that is the case with Vanilla of America. So Awesome. That's from a real scientist, folks. Well, sort of. Okay. As best I can. Remember, yeah. it, we're practicing, <laughs> you know, and uh, we we get in there and we don't know the answers. This this is the, the kind of disappointing thing is that research is about trying to find out and uh, having reasonable ideas that fail and then you move on. And uh, it's that's why they put the re in research. There you go. I never thought of it that way. That's not true, though, is it? It I, is. I guess yeah. You search and then you research. Yeah, I guess that is it, true. Yeah. It really is, and if you're, if I just you thought know that might have been like an old old axiom or something. Well, in in a way, but if you if you know all the answers in advance, it's not research, and so we we are expected to go ahead and and project problems, look at issues, uh, potential things that could arise, show how we get around those. But the bottom line is that uh, we need to advance the knowledge, and so if we don't 
put something of significance on the table, my colleagues will not allow that to proceed. So you, you've got to push the knowledge back a little bit, but just a little bit. If you go too far, if you push too far, if you get too radical, there's a thing called the tyranny of peer review, and it will tend to, to make the too far ideas fail. And so it's, it's very conservative, too. So that's why I say peer review is good, but it won't necessarily answer all the questions. We need some high-quality thinking and a lot of voices, a lot of ideas. And so I, that's what I see Banal of America contributing. Well, thank you very much, sir. It's uh, It's been a real pleasure, and like I said, uh, I can't believe it's so so late in the morning. This has been quite the conversation, and I can guarantee this is not the last time you'll be on the program. I look forward to uh, doing this again in the future. Okay. Great. That does it for this edition of BOA Audio Season 7. Big, big thanks to Dr. Tyler Cokejohn for coming on the show and giving us so much time. You can find out more from him at twitter.com slash Tyler Cokejohn, and you spell that T-Y-L-E-R-K-O-K-J-O-H-N. Check it out. Moving right along now, it is time for BOA Audio Listener Feedback, but because this episode is, once again, long overdue, I'm going to askew listener feedback here this week. I hate to do it two weeks in a row, but I want to get this episode out to folks as soon as possible, and it has been delayed by about at least a week to ten days, so... Let's skip listener feedback here once again this week. I promise I will bring it back on the next installment of BOA Audio, and I'm going to do my very best to make sure the wait is not nearly as long as it has been for this episode. With that said, now is the time in the season where I turn to the BOA Audio listeners and ask you to send us your guest suggestions for the next season of the program. If you look back in the archive of Banal of America Audio, it is littered with guest suggestions from the BOA Audio listeners. Some of the very strongest episodes actually came from BOA Audio listeners, such as our good friend Bruce Rux, who was recommended by USV.com member Lone Gunman. So, the very fabric of BOA Audio is comprised of guest suggestions from the listeners, and now is the time in the season where you have the best chance of getting to hear your guest suggestion on the next series of programs from Banal of America Audio. So, feel free to send me your guest suggestions for BOA Audio Season 8, and of course, feel free to send me your correspondences and thoughts on the program. How do you get a hold of me? That's simple. Just write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or head on over to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com and click the contact button. And if you want something a little more interactive, you can join up at the official BOA forum the US of E dot com T H E U S O F E dot com and if you don't want to write all those letters down just click the forum button at Banal of America. 
We like to call it BOA's Paranormal Playground, where we discuss the world of esoterica, as well as sports and pop culture. Join us, would you, at the US of E. Additionally, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter by punching in Benal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L. That'll bring up my profile on those social network sites. Feel free to befriend me, follow me, or poke me. It's all good, and I'd be happy to have you as part of my online circle of friends. And finally, there is, of course, Benal of America on Facebook. That's pretty simple to find. You just punch in Benal of America on Facebook. That'll bring up the page. It's also linked on my profile. We are currently at 978 likes, so we are just a mere 22 likes away from the long-anticipated 1,000th like. Of course, whoever is that very lucky person will get a shout-out here at the end of the program. So, if you've not liked us yet on Facebook, do so, please. It would be greatly appreciated. Up next, please allow me to take a moment and thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, our webmaster, Ray Weigel, and our graphics guru, Jeremy Boston. I've been teasing you here at the end of the show about BOA 3.0. It is getting very, very close, my friends. I'd like to really have it coincide with the season finale of BOA Audio Season 7, so hopefully just a few short weeks away. It's looking good. I'm very excited about it. I can't really tell you too much more other than it is getting very close to the unveiling. So, as always, stay tuned to Benal of America. Now comes the time in the program where I pass the basket around to the BOA audio listeners and ask you to make a donation to the Benal of America franchise. How do you do that? That is simple. Just head on over to Banal of America and click the PayPal button. That'll take you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. It's safe, secure, and simple. But what if you don't trust the Internet and you want to make a snail mail donation? Well, you're in luck because we have a P.O. box for just that very reason. You can mail your donation to Tim Banal, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass., 01866, and the complete address, of course, can be found at banalofamerica.com, right under the PayPal button. As always, it bears repeating, my friends, no donation is too small, and all donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio to keep the entire franchise up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. On the next edition of the program, we are going to delve into a mystery that I have wanted to explore on BOA Audio for years. I am talking about the mystery of Amelia Earhart. Our guest will be Carol Lynn Dow, author of the book The Lost Flight of Amelia Earhart, and it is an in-depth conversation about the Amelia Earhart mystery, folks. This one is a barn burner. What may have gone wrong on her global flight, and what possibly became of Amelia Earhart? I'm not going to give away Carol's 
theory on the ultimate fate of Amelia Earhart, but it is riveting, folks, and it is really compelling stuff. We're not just going to get into Carol's theory. We're also going to look at all of the various other theories surrounding the fate of Amelia Earhart. This is classic Unsolved Mysteries sightings-type material and a topic that I have been dying to discuss here on the program. And finally, we'll get the chance to explore this mystery with Carolyn Dow, author of The Lost Flight of Amelia Earhart. That's on the next edition of BOA Audio. And on that note, we close the book on this installment of the program. Big, big thanks to Dr. Tyler Cokejohn for coming on the show. And, of course, enormous thanks to all you folks out there, the hardcore BOA Audio listeners, the folks who have supported us episode to episode, season to season, and year to year. You are the lifeblood of this program, and I cannot thank you enough for your enduring support of BOA. Thank you once again for making Banal of America Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Banal, thanking you for listening and signing off.